comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblechild.com slash outnowpodcast. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your Android, iPhone, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week on Out Now with Aaron and Abe. Hey, Aaron, we're recording our 150th episode this week. That's right, we are. We're talking favorite movies. Yeah, well, I think we're going to be joined by some pretty cool guests here. You know it. Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe! Ho, ho, ho! Very appropriate. No, it wasn't. But anyway, <laughs> Out Now is a film podcast. Abe and I are discussing new movies weekly. We also bring a discussion about the latest movie trailers, box office results and predictions, a callback to past films similar to the main film of the week, games, and, and other, other fun, fun stuff. stuff. This is... Our 150th episode spectacular. We've done it, Abe. We've got bum, there. Bada, bum, 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 bum. Exactly. Yeah. 150. We're, we're at it. We're at the. We're at our 150th episode. Shake your screen really quickly, because I'm shaking mine. I'm. Just, I've been shaking my screen. Oh, okay. All right. Doing cool. it for the past week. Wow, that's a lot of screen shaking. I got a lot of things going on this week. <laughs> so, oh. It was uh, an handshake. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is it. We're doing a very special episode this week. We are going to talk about our favorite movies of all time. I cannot say that Abe and I and our guests have necessarily definitive lists, but this is we're, we're going to go all over the kind of subject of favorite movies and what a number of our favorite movies are and what that term means to us. And like go over the we have a master list from HHWLOD, the podcast network that hosts our site, of what the kind of the group the group like grouping of uh, favorite movies is. So there's a lot to cover in this kind of realm. And I'm sure we can explore this more in future episodes of, you know, being more specific and not just kind of a broad understanding of our favorite movies. But with that said, we do have three guests on this show to join us for this discussion from Forbes and a site we once knew him from, Mendelssohn's Memos. It's the loud and proud Scott Mendelssohn. Always a pleasure to be here. From Cinema Maxwell and occasionally the young folks, it's the all singing, all dancing Maxwell Haddad. Hello! And from Why So Blue and the Naptown Nerd, it's the retro horror hound, Brandon Peters. Hello. Uh, happy to uh, to be here. Honored, actually. I'm, I'm glad all three of you guys are here. It's uh, very, very nice to get you guys on board for this episode. A lot of energy tonight. I feel it. Oh, for sure. I feel it. And um, w- with these guys, we're also going to have a number of cameos popping up throughout this podcast episode. What? Oh, yeah. I've had some various outside recordings of other friends of the show's favorite movies, so we're going to insert those here and there. So you're going to get a, 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 a giant smattering of just movies that we think are just absolutely excellent. But before we get to that, let's do, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's have some, uh, some show notes here. Let's get some stuff done. Um, Abe. Yeah. We've been, uh, we've been trying to get a lot of iTunes reviews lately. We have been trying to get a lot of iTunes. We've had a, a campaign, if you will. Yeah. Seven weeks ago, we asked if we can get seven iTunes reviews before the 150th episode. And I'm here right now to say we managed to achieve that goal. And then some. You can't see it right now, but my arms raise like Rocky right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, they should be. And uh, <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Uh, I'm very happy that the, the listeners were able to help us out and reach that goal, and it's awesome. Um, in the coming weeks, I'll kind of figure out something with the uh, 
the, the kind of the, the prize round. The wrap drawing? Up. The drawing, yeah. yes. But, uh, we'll save that for another date because this is, this, we got, we have a lot to do on this show. We got no time for this. But thank you very much for everybody that submitted an iTunes review and rating. It helps out our show. It helps other people Sincerely find Sincerely, a huge thank you to all of you. For sure. And, um, with that said, um, the only other thing I have to announce right now is that this is the last kind of reg, this kind, this kind of episode you're going to hear. Even this one is kind of different from the other ones because we're not going to talk about a main movie of the week. But we're going to kind of mix up the formatting of this show a bit in the, you know, the weeks following this episode. So the, <laughs> say goodbye <laughs> to version 3.6 of Out Now Fair Today, babe. We're moving. Version 3.7 <laughs> is coming up. All right. So let's do, I'm going to do a real quick note, everybody. I have a question. This is where, of course, we set the tone for the podcast and better get to know everybody. And I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to throw it out to everybody. Have you guys ever watched a movie, then immediately sat down and watched it again? Just right after the first time? Probably when I was a child. I probably watched Terminator 2, like, back to back to back. (laughs) Or Back to the Future, back to back to back. I know for sure Adam's family, when when my brother brought that home from college. And I was, uh, um, like, over a decade younger than my brother, so... Yeah, that was really funny when I watched that. You have an old brother. I do. He's he's uh like a, he's like an old. He's like half in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be happy to hear you say that. I hope so. <laughs> Any of you guys? Um, I don't think I've done that. I've I and this probably doesn't count, but the night I saw Vanilla Sky in theaters. I immediately ran out and rented uh, Open Your Eyes and watched that. All right. No, I actually did something similar a couple weeks ago. I watched the Japanese Godzilla for the first time and then sort of skimmed through the American version because I was curious. Oh, boy. That is a move. Oh, the American version. I was in the... the yeah, the, re- the Raymond Burr. Uh, Got it. Yeah, okay. I've done it a couple of times. There's a couple of times actually where I saw a movie in cinemas and then went to the next show. Um, not often. Yeah. A couple of times. Um, one of which I'll mention later. Hint, hint. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't recall, um, honestly, about that. I know I have some VHS tapes I, I wore out, but I can't recall what. Um, I have seen a, a movie, you know, twice in the same day in the theater a couple on a couple occasions, but I don't know that I've sat and watched a movie and then watched, you know, another one again. I have done franchise marathons a plenty, mm-hmm. where I'll watch a, a you know sequel or a couple sequels like you right know, in a row. But uh, the same one again, I, I can't recall. There's a few that I've done that are going to be mentioned on this list. One I have, one that's not a favorite, but that I have done for is Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig version. Not, <laughs> not because, 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 because no one watched the Woody Allen. Nobody watched the other one. <laughs> People <laughs> barely make it through the other one. <laughs> that really needed to be clarified. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page. Lewis Gasset Jr. was great in the casino right now. Um, Peter Sellers, man. Yeah. There's there's a good ten minutes of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, Casino Royale, I, I, I have um, – I, I was like a huge binge portal. I was like watching like all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm like, oh, now i got to watch this movie. So I did, and then I like went to a friend's house. like, dude, we're watching Casino Royale. I'm like, all right, then whatever. <laughs> Let's watch it again. <laughs> It has been dictated. Yeah. All right. So with that out of the way, let's move into the main event here. We're going to go over our, you know, favorite movies ever. Today, we will discuss our favorite films and what that term means to us. I imagine this will only be the first of many discussions of this type of subject as I could. I mean, this is just going to be a broad summation of films as opposed to what we can really get into when considering what our favorite movies, types of movies, 
movies in various decades really are. So with that said, let's start off with a kind of a more general question before we get to like actual films. What does the idea of favorite film mean to you? What is what is what does that term mean when someone says that to you? Let's start with Maxwell. It can be hard to define. I mean, sometimes I, I consider a lot of different things. Sometimes I consider how many times I've watched a movie, like repeatability, um, if that's a word. Um, but at the end of the day, I think ultimately my favorite movies are the ones that mean the most to me for whatever reason. Either I connect to them strongly on an emotional level, or they defined a particular period of my life, or I just think of them and um, it makes me smile. Um, you know, it's a very difficult concept to articulate, but that's how I would do so. Brandon? There's, there's, yeah, like Maxwell said, many different factors. For me, you know, there's some movies that, that floored me when I first saw them, and I, I always have that strong memory of, wow, um, when I first saw it. There's ones that, you know, I've watched watched a bunch of rewatchability. There's ones that mean something new every time I watch it, or I learn something different from it with each view, which is always interesting to me. And some movies, you know, don't don't always work for you the first time then you keep going back and and you find them come stronger and then you know ones that will teach me a thing or two about film or writing or you know production things are a factor too um just there's a lot of different things but those are some of the ones that that work for me scott well a lot of what's already been said i mean it is tough to and i'm sure we'll talk about this later it's tough to it's often sometimes tough to judge the films that you loved as a kid versus the films that you you see now because they are you know you, you have the nostalgia and and the the you know for, at the risk of getting cheesier you know the hope and the, you know the hope and and optimism of of what have you you know the movies that made you discover and love film are very different from the movies that you see when you're an adult you know for any number of reasons um as far as what the favorite film is, for one thing, it's not the same thing as best movie. And that's, I think, for me, the most important clarification. There are several films on my list that I will gladly admit are not great movies. But they are perfect for me. And I guess that's how I eventually narrowed it down. Uh, what is a favorite movie? It's, it's, it's a movie that reminds you why you love film. Abe? Certainly a favorite film to me is not one that really is... Um quantified in such ways such as an imdb rating or rotten tomatoes rating it certainly is one of those things where it's kind of like a uh, an emotional investment to some degree um films that make me feel uh, like what maxwell had said uh, they remind you of a certain time or a certain place and they have a special meaning to you it's not always the best movie but you know for whatever reason it it uh it creates or it has a, a very positive connotation in your life and it is something that you can always go back to. It just reminds you of something, and you can either remember where all the lines, and you can remember where all the mistakes are, or um, you just have a very positive time watching it because you remember watching it with some friends or family at a past point, and um, you can always return to it, and it's always, it's never going to let you down. Yeah, I'm certainly in that same field as a lot what a lot of what you guys have already said, and it's stopping short of saying it's what defines me as a person. It is kind of looking at a list of what movies you consider to be, you know, your favorites, not necessarily best ever, but your favorites. It there's there's certainly the the notion that a lot of what makes up your personality you can find in said movies. Obviously, you can't necessarily relate to every single character in all these different movies or whatnot, but there's 
a lot of things about each one of them that's, you know, you can find facets of your own personality within them or reflecting upon you or having had some kind of influence on how you conduct your own life for especially for people that, you know, are cinemaphiles. And it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I agree with a lot of what you guys said. It just, seeing certain movies makes you always happy or it's always something you can fall back on or it's something you can quote or it's something you can reference or it's something you can use in a way to argue another point or something of that matter. There's just a lot of things about a certain selection of movies that practically inform, you know, a lot of how you conduct your business. It's nice to have this kind of like list. If I'm looking at this right now, it's like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is just who, not who I am, but this is a part of who I am. <laughs> so with that said, um, before we kind of move on, let's, uh, I'm going to throw it over to one of the, uh, one of our cameos here and uh, let's see how that goes. All right, here. I am now with Mark Hoban. Say hi, Mark. Hello. And um, this is what we're doing. We're going over our favorite movies, and I want to ask Mark now, what are your favorite movies of all time? So uh, when I was approaching this, I kind of wanted to go through a broad spectrum of movies throughout the years. Um, And any list of great films of mine would have to include Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I could actually come up with ten movies just from Alfred Hitchcock, but uh, I just picked one for my list and uh, that movie was notorious and I just really like that movie a lot and I know like I mean I could name nine other films from him because I love his style and the way that he's able to combine movies or uh, combine um, dialogue and, and, a, and a plot but that is just represents probably one of my favorite movies from him. Um, Ben-Hur is another favorite, mm. and what I love about that is just the spectacle of it all. Um, that's probably representation of that kind of a film for me, is the spectacle. And I mean, it's and it's a very long film, and generally I'm not into really long films, but this is one where it holds my attention throughout the whole thing, and it, it's just incredibly uh, riveting. And then uh, third, uh, and these are no, in no particular order, but uh, Yell Submarine is one of my favorite animated films of all time, and I always have always felt that was like a perfect marriage of animation and music. And then, uh, and I, I, by the way, I'm going kind of in order of oldest movie to most recent. That's kind of what I picked up, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is often the movie that I give for my favorite film of all time, and that's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, with Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher. One of the greatest, I mean – basically movies of all time i love the uh the interaction between those two characters and it's really just a very emotionally powerful movie um next uh actually there are two movies that are kind of like my favorite sequels of all time and they actually came out in the very same year um superman 2 and the empire strikes back two great blockbusters and Superman 2, I actually think that that's actually better than the original. I like both of them, but Superman 2, because uh, of the three supervillains, I thought that kind of crystallizes what makes a superhero film great. And anytime I sort of see that, it, it did it best in, in that year. And there have been films since then that I've I've enjoyed. I mean, like The Avengers is a movie that kind of incorporates that sort of multiple uh, character development and stuff that I enjoy, but Superman kind of did it, or Superman two, I should say, did it the best. And then, and then Empire Strikes Back. I, I mean, I could have picked Star Wars because that's also great, but 
Empire Strikes Back really kind of took that same basic story and then kind of built on it in a way that I thought was really quite extraordinary. So that's why I, I actually am including that one instead of the first. And then next, um, two movies that sort of represent summer blockbusters. And this has a little bit to do with um, my age and when I was going to movies as a kid. But both Ghostbusters and Back to the Future are definitely movies that kind of influenced me in terms of my love of film. And then kind of contrary to that, which is a movie that I don't really enjoy watching over and over, but, but is definitely a very powerful and important film, is Schindler's List. Um, this was almost a, a film that feels like a documentary because it's so realistic. And I thought it actually did it probably the one of the best jobs in detailing a period of history in a very honest and real way. Next would be the, the Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very powerfully moving uh, portrait of male camaraderie. And, I mean, it's just a really well... It, it takes place over 20 years, and I just love the way that that kind of um, plays out over the course of the film. Um, and I actually rewatched it recently, and, and it, it still holds up as one of my most favorite films of all time. And then um, this is a little bit more of a of an odd choice. It's one of my f most favorite science most favorite science fiction films of all time, and it's The Fifth Element. I just think yeah. that <laughs> it's it's one of the loopiest movies ever made. And I when I see this film, I mean it's just. It's it's so cinematically dazzling. I love the the costumes. Jean-Paul Gaultier did them. The, I love uh, Gary Oldman's villain. I mean, I actually love the whole... Uh, you've got uh, uh, Tiny Lister as the president of the United States. It's just crazy. Chris Tucker, I mean, he was robbed of a uh, Oscar nomination. I'm I, glad we're in the camp that think Chris Tucker's hilarious in The Fifth Element, because I know a lot yeah, of people yeah, don't like him. But. It's not one of those things that... I know it's kind of some people don't care for that performance, but um, yeah, no, I think what he did with that role was kind of like incredible. And then, and then lastly, I just wanted to pick one, my favorite film of, well, one of my favorite films, I should say, of the last 10 years. And it's also another big production spectacle. And that's Inception uh, by Christopher Nolan, one of my favorite film directors in recent years. And I just, that aerial fight sequence the it's almost like a pugilistic ballet in zero gravity is one of the greatest fight sequences i've ever seen and one of the reasons why i am also including it in my my favorite films of all time well thank you mark that is a, a very eclectic mix of films and um <laughs> i i share a number of those favorites so but yeah it's always a tough thing to kind of map out like what movies you love wholeheartedly more than anything else. And I, I appreciate you putting the effort in for us. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about my favorite films. Wow. That was really informative guys. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, it's fun to record with all those guys, you know, get a lot of different thoughts here so we can, you know, make this a more cohesive experience. Um, with that said, let's, uh, let's start going over our own list. Let's, uh, let's do, we, we each have like a good, like 20 movies on our list that we kind of made up for, um, Something we'll get to in a bit. Um, so with that said, let's like go over our first like five favorite movies from each of us to kind of you know keep bringing that in. And uh, let's start let's start with Brandon. How about that? Okay. First off, um, I want to plug my my site Naptown Nerd. Um, if you look on the the side, there's a link to something called Favorite Films of My Lifetime, 
which is a series I did with like the you know, top five films from every year I've been alive, and you'll get a lot more of my favorites and and stuff there. Because I mean, putting it into twenty is really difficult, and you know I've been alive you know thirty two years. Films have been around for over a hundred, and cramming it down to twenty is you know really tough. So without further ado, uh, number twenty, um, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, number nineteen, Rocky. Uh, eighteen, uh, the original nineteen sixty eight Night of the Living Dead. Uh, number seventeen, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. And number 16, Back to the Future. And you want to single out in just a few brief words? I'll talk about um, The Seventh Seal is an interesting one because I didn't see that film until college. And it was in one of my film history classes. And the professor announced that we'd be watching it. You know, he, he gave the syllabus on the first day and was like listening to films we'd be watching. And that one came with a huge groan. Like, oh my gosh. And then, and I was like, what in the world? What is with this movie? And, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's this long, boring movie and it's, it's Swedish and black and people were getting all mad. And, and then the day came when, you know, the next class was going to be that and everybody's like, oh. And so I show up to the class where we were having the screening and it's like nobody shows up but like six or seven people and half of them were, sleeping on their desk, and I watched it, and I was honestly, wow. I thought it was, the film was pretty powerful, pretty potent, had a lot of great uh, imagery with the cinematography, and I just fell in love with it. This little little story about a guy coming home after the Crusades, escaping death, and there's plague and stuff, and, you know, that death, the character of death is, like, insanely iconic, and it was even parodied in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. But uh, brilliantly Ma- parodied. Yes, brilliantly parodied. Um, <laughs> Max von Sydow is great. I really like that movie. There's a lot of sim- symbology in it. You can take it many different ways. You can see different things. But I was surprised. I was the one person in my class that was like, "Wow, this movie's awesome." What are you guys talking about? I don't know. That was a surprise. But now, yeah, it's on my list of top twenty because I really like it that much, and I go back to it and try to look for new things and learn, learn new, th- try to see uh, new things about it. Let's go to Maxwell. All right, um, starting uh, with 20, uh, the Coen Brothers' Fargo. Then we have uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and at number uh, 16, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Um, I'll just talk briefly about Eternal Sunshine. Um, that was a film I alluded to earlier that I, I saw and then pretty much didn't leave the theater and, and watch the next showing. Um, it's easily the most recent film on my list and it kind of came at a time where I was you know I'm still trying to but I was just beginning to understand you know at its very base level what love is and what pain is and although it's a you know a fanciful and an incredibly clever science fiction movie I think it does a better job than almost any film I've seen of exploring the pain that can be associated with love Scott let's go to you these are in somewhat random order, but in my first five, uh, Pulp Fiction, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Vertigo, Unbreakable, and Shanghai Nights. And needless to say, I'm going to have to single out Shanghai Nights. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Shanghai Nights is one of those movies that I think I like more than anyone else on the planet. Um and, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, that, 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 you know, there are several films on this list that I wouldn't necessarily argue are great, but 
are perfect for me. Shanghai Nights is my favorite Jackie Chan film by a wide mile. It is an almost perfect version of what it wants to be. It is an action comedy that is funny. You know, the, the chemistry between Owen Wilson and, and Jackie Chan is not only effective, but it's warm. You actually believe these two characters are actually friends and that they have grown closer after the, the events of the first film. This is a sequel to Shanghai Noon. Um, it's a sequel that remembers it's a sequel so that they don't go through the same lessons all over again. Um, the action sequences are fantastic. Um, it's easily the best Jackie Chan stuff in any of his American pictures. And it's filled with a number of just really clever and entertaining supporting characters. You've got, and I apologize, I don't have any of the actors in front of me right now, but, you know, you have a, you know, a very, you know, the best line in the film is an offhand insult that goes to a supporting character who plays a police inspector. You have uh, a villain that announces pretty early on that he is a master swordsman. And sure enough, as should be the law in these kind of films, the film ends with a sword fight to the death atop Big Ben. And it's one of the best sword fights in American cinematic history. It's actually even better on the DVD where you have the uncut version as a deleted scene, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Jackie Chan is one of those people that I think, as much as we claim, you know, we like him, he's, you know, he does his own stuff, blah, blah, blah. You know, 50 years from now when he's dead, we are going to, you know, the film students of tomorrow are going to be talking about him the way we talk about Chaplin and Keaton today. And one of the reasons I think it's so important to, you know, shine a light on even something that, pardon the pun, is Pulp Fiction, like Shanghai Nights, is that it's important to recognize the great stuff today rather than wait till everybody involved is dead to say, oh, no, wait, that was a perfect example of that kind of genre filmmaking. I have to I want to agree with you, Scott, there, because I, I just recently revisited a police story, um, the first one of that from the 80s, and it it's amazing what he did. And it still holds up there. And some of the action had that kind of like, ooh type feel like something like the raid today has. It's amazing. Yeah. It still holds up like that. And his work is just crazy good. Um, and I, 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 one of the things about Shanghai Nights is that it combines the top, you know, the, the very, you know, the high watermark action choreography with the somewhat quirkier characters that are some, you know, the more the character work. It's not nonstop action. There is a story, there is a plot, there are character arcs, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is it a, one of the greatest films of all time? No. Is it even a great film? Eh, maybe. But for what it tries to do, it does all, pretty much everything right, and I think that should not go unnoticed. Thank you for that. I'm very glad that we have a favorite movies podcast that has a lengthy discussion about Shanghai Nights in it. But in all <laughs> seriousness, I, I, I do I do like that movie. I like that movie, and too. It's, it's, yeah. that kind of, it's hearing that kind of passion that makes me want to like revisit it like right away. And that's something that I like when I hear about people's favorite movies and why they like them. Uh, Abe? Uh, I have largely no particular order in which I have these placed. Uh, they're just all my favorites, and they obviously all mean something to me, and I can remember exactly where I am uh, when I watch them. But anyhow, the first five that I'll name are uh, Half Nelson, Rocky, Halloween, Terminator 2, and uh, The Sandlot. And um, I'll, I'll point out Terminator 2 primarily just because I love that movie a lot. And I love that movie so much that I remember when I was, uh, when it came out, I forget the year it came out, 1991. Thanks. It came out to VHS like a year later, right? So my parents were at some apartments that we had owned at that time, and I was literally just sitting in some stranger's home. 
And I watched that movie with these strangers while my parents were like, hey, um, you can just stay here and watch this movie, and we're going to go and collect some rent. And I was like, yes, okay, fine, do whatever. I was in a stranger's home, and I watched this movie with two complete strangers until it was over. And then I went out and we bought it at Costco uh, probably like a week later. But this movie, it scared me a lot because I was thinking the, the world's going to end. Um, but then I also thought, oh, but we're safe, we're safe because John Connor and Arnold Schwarzenegger are going to save the day. And uh, I kept on thinking of um, the, the visual effect when Los Angeles gets nuked. And I was like, man, I'm never going to move to Los Angeles. And uh, I have that same I had that same fear when I was young. I watched E2 when I was super young. It's, yeah. a movie, it's a movie I grew up with, and I had a constant fear of nuclear attack because of Terminator 2. <laughs> I, I hear, like, loud planes be like, oh, this is it. This <laughs> the bomb's coming. There goes Cyberdyne! <laughs> but, yeah, for the most part, I love that movie a lot. I, I oftentimes uh, will catch it. Sometimes it's on uh, uh, television, not so much anymore. It seems like um, every channel has the right to see, too, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember on the VHS also, this is the last thing I'll say, is that... Uh, there was this awesome Subway commercial on the VHS that you would see when some guy's like, hey, I work for Subway, and we would love to cater your lunches, and he's got this jokey atmosphere, and it's like this really funny commercial at the beginning of the VHS before you get into the film, and I don't know, I, I love that movie. I'll preface my uh, first five and my list by saying I uh, my list my list is ever-growing, and I think all of us can probably say that our lists are ever-growing. We always have constant new movies that we you know consider adding to our favorite movies list. And there's a there's a lot of things I leave out of my list just because I don't like there's there's so many movies and so many that I just consider at this point to be like givens. And my key example is the Star Wars trilogy where I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I love Star Wars. I love the original trilogy. And I just it's at a point where I just don't see the point of putting it in a top 10 list. I feel like it just it's it's something I don't need to say. And I think a lot of the picks that I leave out on purpose are are. I handle that in the same way where I just I don't see the need to put it in a top 10 list of all time just because they feel like, for lack of, lack of a better word, they're givens. And so with that said, a lot of my this list that I have in front of me, this top 20 list, reflects kind of this it, – it's very modern. Um, and I use these picks as ones that kind of define how I grew up in the movies that I watched as I developed into a person that where I am now, where I am writing about movies and talking about movies and doing many, many things that are all related to cinema in some way. So with that said, uh, the first five films on my list, I have Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, Christopher Nolan's Memento, Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Alex Perez's Dark City, and Doug Liman's Swingers. Um, what movie would I single out there? I'd probably say Memento. Um, just because that's a movie, that's the example that I would give of a movie that I watched and then watched it right away again. I fell just right into this trap of this movie of the the labyrinth that it presented me of this guy Lenny, who what she doesn't like to be called, and how he <laughs> how Lenny. he Lenny and how he uses this this system to you know try to try to figure out this mystery of who murdered his wife and whether or not that's even relevant, how, how it, there's so many different like aspects to this film that just make it endlessly intriguing to me, given all the supporting characters, everything that Guy Pierce's character is going through, how he has to deal with this condition of not being able to remember far past what he's just learned and how that changes the story around, especially given that the story's told mostly backwards and the cleverness it has in making that an entertaining tale that somehow communicates to you what's going on in the plot without easily spelling it out 
it's just utterly fantastic. I just, I love this movie. I love Memento. I can watch it all. I mean, all these movies on this list, I can watch any time of day. I can put any of them on right away and just be like, yep, let's do this right now. But I mean, Memento is just, I find it fascinating in the way it presents a mystery and challenges an audience to really interpret how this mystery comes together based on the non-linear nature of the story. It's so fascinating. You can watch it backwards and forwards. I've done, have you done that, I've by done, the way? Yes, have I have. I that? actually... I I uh, I wrote a paper on Memento in college too. Mm-hmm. I was I was just as fascinated with that movie as you were. The thing that's always amazed me about Memento, and I love it as much as I'm sure everyone else here, is that it's a film told backwards. It contains a forward character arc mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is just but astonishing to me. It's actually told kind of backwards and forwards and meets in the middle. Like everybody wants to say it's straight backwards, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah. meeting it's meeting itself in the middle. So now that we've got the first five out of the way. Let's go to another topic we can discuss. Let's go over this um, this giant list. Um, as people know, Out Now, Affair and Today was brought to you by the HHW LOD Podcast Network. And part of why this came up of talking about favorite movies is that back in uh, late last year, Russell asked if I, if myself and Abe could come up with our favorite movies of all time and submit it over to HHW LOD in general so they could create a giant master list. He wanted to get a lot of opinions because also Brandon and, and uh, Maxwell host the, at that time, the Icapod Crane Castify. That means they're, you know, part of the network technically. And it's fun to get Scott involved too. He said, why don't you, you know, get some of your other boys that are constantly on the podcast involved in, as well. So that's why we all kind of put these lists together to begin with. And so taking that forward, we now have like this, we have a master list of the entire HHWLOD network. So including all the other guys from the various other podcasts on said network. And we have the top 20 films from that list. And so I want to go over... I'm going to read through these right now. And we can kind of discuss it in a general basis, because I'm sure some of these movies are on all of our lists in general, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but So here's the HHWLOD top 20. And I'll go, I'll go from the bottom. Uh, the Matrix, Jurassic Park, Jackie Brown, Batman, Fellowship of the Ring, Halloween, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, The Incredibles, Goodfellas, The Dark Knight, Back to the Future, Avengers, Pulp Fiction, The Godfather, Blade Runner, Alien, Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and The Empire Strikes Back. I think there's a common... Th- I, I think you can understand what kind of list this is right here. It's very geek-friendly. Um, <laughs> it's very much showing kind of a very a very popular look at populist-type films. There's, and it's... I, this isn't a surprising list whatsoever in terms of the people that were involved in it, and even in general of people like us that like movies. And if you had to kind of gauge a very broad spectrum of favorite movies, you'd likely see a lot of pretty much all of these movies on that list. I think it says something about those movies too that they just—I mean, the fact that they continually come up and you know, like like you said, they're givens, but they're givens because they made that big of an impact on so many people. Especially, right. Well, in the geek world, I mean. I was gonna say even uh, I mean it's not that. It's not even necessarily about the geek world, too. I mean, you don't see... These films just are not ephemeral. I mean, you don't see stuff like Cowboys and Aliens on here. That's a comic book, and people <laughs> recognize that, but that's not a movie that anyone recognizes as very good or something that you would go back to and watch again. I mean... It's not one anybody remembers except you, eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, these films, they, they're a part of just mainstream culture as well now, and geek or not, geeks are cool. I, I guess we're film geeks, uh, but for the most part... These are just films that I think everyone enjoys, too. And, again, they are well-made, and that is probably the biggest thing that uh, encompasses all of them. Well, I think part of it is, and, you know, I I can't speak to everyone's individual age. I know somewhat how old everybody is. But when you talk about people that, you know, who discovered movies as kids, 
no one, you know, there aren't a lot of six-year-olds that saw Europa Europa at a tender age and decided, you know, I'm going to love movies for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, it's usually stuff like Star Wars or Batman or Jurassic Park or, you know, you know age variants, you know, you know, the Matrix. And there'll be an entire generation, for better or worse, <laughs> of film nerds that were six years old and they saw the Avengers and, you know, never fell out of love with movies after that. Does that mean that there's there's you know, something less than about, you know, artier pictures? Of course not. But in terms of the films that make people fall, you know, the gateway drugs to cinema are generally not, you know, My Dinner with Andre. <laughs> or, you know, even something like Annie Hall, which is, you know, obviously a comedy. They are, you know, the the propulsive, visceral action-adventure experiences that you see on the big screen and make you realize, wow, this is awesome. I think... Um, one thing to consider too, and, um, it's kind of, uh, furthering, a, Aaron used the word populist, and that's a good way to describe the list. And, you know, I agree with everything everyone said about why the list is the way it is. And keep mm -hmm. in mind, I like, or if not love every movie on that list, but whenever you get a group of people together to come up with a common, to agree on a common list as such, and it's generated in the way it's generated where the films that receive the most number of mentions ultimately make it on the list, it's going to end up being ones that are more popular. You know, if you had one or two guys talking about, you know, the life and times of Colonel Blimp or, or <laughs> Berlin Alexander Splats, they're, they're not going to make it on a list that has so many people voting on it. You know, that's ultimately what happens with stuff like the Oscars, too, which are supposed to name the best movies of the year. You have a, a large group of people coming to a common consensus. So, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing at all, but that's, uh, I think, interesting to keep in mind. Well said, all of you. But, um, okay, with all that said, let's get to another uh, another one of our of our uh, cameo guests here, so I'm going to throw it back over there. So I'm sitting here, Alan Aguilera. All right, good evening. How are we doing? Or good day. Whatever you decide. It doesn't matter. Good really. drive. Yeah, good, good drive. Listen, good gym. I, I assume people are sweating listening All to, that. to <laughs> yeah. us talking. That'd be great. Yeah, no, so here we go. We're going to record. We're going to talk about what are some of Alan Aguilera's favorite movies of all time. So my favorite movies. Well, it's just easier if I kind of go through like my top ten, but yeah, that's sure. too much time. I want to make it shorter, yeah, make really? it nice and crisp. Do you, um, really quick, top ten. It's like LA Confidential, um, Snatch, Seven Samurai, Join the Men, and... Um, 400 blows, but th those are just some of my. Those are some. Those are rounding yeah, out. That's my a nice, time. and that's a nice kind of span of time, right? It is. I yeah. just kind of go all over the place. You don't know. You don't know what I'm about to do, right? It's over. Okay, so like some of my favorite movies all kind of have a similar theme. Like number five, I guess, would be Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. Nice classic 80s movie was made. A couple months before I, you know, came out a couple months before I was born, but growing up, I just used to watch it all the time, and then watching it again as an adult, it's hilarious. It is fantastic. A lot of special effects, kind of scary if you're a kid, but I was into it. I agree. It's a rad movie. It's a good, it's one of my favorite movies. So that was, that's one of my favorite movies. Um, another one would probably be Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. I was a big World War II kid. Like, not as in I went to war when I was a World War II. You strapped up early. I strapped up early. Yeah. I, had to, had, I had to be Bucky. Okay. No, um... I uh, I just was like liked World War II a lot. I watched a lot of like old propaganda films just because I was a weird kid that never got out of the house. <laughs> so when Saving Private Ryan came out, one I was already a big, big Steven Spielberg fan. Mm -hmm. So I went in and I was like, "Holy balls, this is rad!" I there were like 
um, Adam Goldberg was in it, so I was really excited. I remember my first experience watching that movie vividly, and it was one of my favorite experiences, and everybody talks about the D-Day scene being the most realistic, but I have to admit that that last act, when they're in that town, and they're defending that town, and it's like a standoff, yeah. is amazing. Mm -hmm. The way it's set up, I felt emotion in that movie. It is stupid how much I cared at the end of that movie. Um, it took me forever to kind of understand what Tom Hanks said. It was earn this, earn but it. I was like, earn it. Earn it? Or earn, Ernest. Who's Ernest? Ernest? Ernest goes to war? Yeah, I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> um, so that was, that's that one. Um, this is all going to start sounding pretty similar right up here. Uh, my next one would probably be uh, Seven. Mm -hmm. uh, the David Fincher film. I'm a big, David, big, 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 huge David Fincher fan. And Seven was the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater okay. with my parents. And which is weird because two years later they wouldn't let me see Scream because they thought I was going to be too young for it. <laughs> I thought that was silly. Um, I loved at, at that point I ended up being enamored with Kevin Spacey and Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, who is my favorite actor, as unconventional as some might think that a male Latino would love him as much as I do. But it's true. <laughs> I adored Brad Pitt. Um, so I started watching that and I just got really, really enamored with it. The Nine Inch Nails song that they kind of used in the beginning and the imagery kind of messed me up when I was 11 years old, but um, the way it's set up, I don't think it'll, I don't think any crime film has been able to match that in that way since. Uh, my next one, uh, probably number two, would probably be... I already mentioned Children of Men, right? Yes. Because I switched that up a little bit, didn't I? You know what? Let's talk about Children of Men. Children of Men is one of my favorite movies. I love The Long Takes, one of Alfonso Cuaron's favorite... One of my, my favorite Alfonso Cuaron movie, even over any of the other movies he's done. That one's my favorite, and I love Clive Owen and, and the way that... It was a future that looked very, very plausible. Mm -hmm. It was dirty. It was gritty. It's, it's just I, I, don't, I don't know what I can say about the movie that other people haven't said about it, but I watched it in the theater, and that year I think it was the only time when I watched it more than any other movie that year. And I think it was 2006, and I just didn't. I just kept watching it and kept watching. It. I love that movie. I saw the movie twice in the theater within 12 hours. I yeah, saw, I saw it, and then I was like, I'm gonna see it again the next day. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. I remember what my other one was. There Will Be Blood. <laughs> um, I love it. Daniel, like, uh, uh, just adored it. Daniel Day-Lewis is amazing. But my favorite movie, the movie that means the most to me, is very cliched with a lot of people my age, but it's Fight Club. Fight Club is my favorite movie. It came out in 99, and before then, I was a really big kind of action kid. Like, obviously, I talked about Saving Private Ryan earlier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I love The Rock. I love Point Break. I love From Dust Till Dawn. I love Pulp Fiction, but... When I saw Fight Club and I saw how it kind of turned this idea of film on its head, where it wasn't a normal type of film. It wasn't a film that I imagined a big studio like Fox would make. So when I saw it, being a freshman in high school, blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind because I didn't think that a studio would make a movie like this. And I didn't think that there were other movies like this. So the reason I love Fight Club so much isn't because of the whole male aggression and... Project Mayhem and how cool that must be. I don't really care about that as much as I cared about the story. I cared about how he made it. I cared about the, the honestly. I think it's a, I think it's one of the best love stories of all time. I think it's a modern love story for us. Mm -hmm. That's an entire, that kind of influenced an entire generation of millennials because of how screwed up the narrator is. But that film to me is almost um, a gateway drug because that opened up my eyes to watching classic. Film. I'm trying to blank, but like eight and a half weeks, or 400 blows, or even audition that Japanese horror film. Like I started opening up more and started just going out on a limb to watch these independent films to really dive in, not just watch a Tarantino or Cameron Smith movie, but legitimately watch 
how film works. Yeah, I started understanding it more. It got me in- interested in story. It got me interested in cinematography and score and how much that... Because the score for Fight Club just intertwines it so much that it doesn't feel like they're just sampling songs. It doesn't feel like... As much as I love Scorsese and Tarantino's choice of music, th- sometimes they can take take me out of a film. So Fight Club to me is just an encompassment of when I came of age as a film fan. So to me, Fight Club is my favorite movie of all time. And it's probably not for the other reasons that other people like it, but that's just why it's so near and dear to my heart. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. That's very good stuff. Uh, you gave me five minutes and I took 26, so that's good. <laughs> that's plenty. Thanks for that. Yeah. Again, good to, good to get a lot of thoughts from everybody else, too, just because it's, you know, we're, we already have five people on this podcast, so we, like we have to, but it's nice to spread the wealth in terms of everything we can get out there in terms of favorite movies. So with that said, let's do another batch of favorite movies. Let's do another five, and uh, let's let's start with uh, let's start with uh, Scott this time. Okay, let me knock down another five of these in arbitrary order. Uh, the Dark Knight, L.A. Confidential, Malcolm X, and Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. <coughs> and I think of that list, I'd like to talk about Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Uh, I think that film is the best mainstream comedy of the 1990s. Um, what, something I believe Aaron mentioned in the beginning of the show about movies that reflect who you are. The first Austin Powers is basically a movie that's so in tune with my sense of humor that I was almost a little sad that I didn't make it. <laughs> um, the, the satirical elements of action films and action cliches and, and, you know, obviously the Bond films are the most obvious references, but, um, and I remember watching it thinking, my goodness, really, no one's ever really made a movie about this before. No one's really made a movie about the, you know, the talking killer syndrome or the, you know, disposable henchmen or the, you know, the elaborate death trap. I mean, you see all that stuff in, you know, Mad Magazine and, and things of that nature, but no one had really made a movie about that. And that stuff was terrifically funny. And of course, it was a great fish out of water comedy. You know, it took the, the character of Austin Powers, a, a, you know, stereotypical swinging sixties bachelor and put him in the 1990s and while that might not have been as conventionally funny as the Dr. Evil material, which in my mind was much more amusing, seeing a, you know, basically a, a tight ass, pardon my expression, <laughs> being put into the, you know, the 1990s. What I love about Austin Powers is, unlike the sequels, it's actually about something very poignant. You know, the, the Mike Myers has a very brief speech toward the end of the movie where he basically apologizes for letting the morality of the 1960s get overshadowed by the debauchery of the 1960s. The notion that because they engaged in free love and, and free dope and, and, you know, the outrageous fashion and, and the things that you stereotypically think about when you think of the sixties, it made it so much easier for the quote unquote bad guys of the 1960s to make that the message as opposed to the, you know, free love, peace, not war, et cetera, et cetera, and thus allowed overall the bad guys to win the 60s. And, you know, I, I think the sequels, unfortunately, I, I don't like either of the sequels, frankly. I, I don't think they're really about anything. I think they missed the point of the original film in that it wasn't just, 
haha, let's take this 1960s James Bond character and put him in the politically correct 1990s. I mean, that's what Goldeneye was for all intents and purposes, um, which I also love Goldeneye. But it was basically a way for Mike Myers to come to terms with the idea that as much as people like to talk about the 1960s as this era of, you know, free love and, and student activism and, you know, the quote-unquote regular people rising up against the tyrannical big government, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, they lost. You know, Vietnam didn't end because of protesters, you know, flower power running in the streets. You know, Vietnam War ended when the draft became, you know, stopped excluding rich people from going to war. So this was, you know, basically Mike Myers' way of, expl- you know, basically apologizing. You know, obviously he wasn't old enough to act- be an active participant per se, but apologizing for letting the messengers overshadow the message. And aside from being a very funny film, and aside from having incredibly iconic characters, and of course, you know, the the, the various catchphrases becoming a part of the zeitgeist, it actually is a very profound social statement. And that's what I think takes it from just being a great comedy to being a great film. Let's jump over to Brandon. At number 15, I have Memento, which we have just got done talking about. Uh, Number 14, um, The Terminator, 1984. Uh, Gross Point Blank comes at number 13. Number 12, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And number 11, Annie Hall. I'm going to talk about The Terminator. Um... Back in the day, I this is one that, you know, it was a great movie, and then the second one was so awesome, but as I've aged, as I've become older, my my John Carpenter B-movie-loving self has preferred the first Terminator over the second. I think they're both great great movies, don't get me wrong, but something about the, the lower budget and the, the dirty look of the first one kind of gets me with all the traditional um, practical effects and stuff and the dread, and it's I just like the, the, uh, the kind of small scale story that has huge ramifications that um, you go through the night. I really like this, the character of Kyle Reese. Um, I like that you don't see that too much of the future, and it's not too over the top. It's still pretty restrained, but it's a great, intense chase thriller uh, movie. And I just like the, the grimy look of the, the 1980s L.A. streets and stuff, too. It's really I cool. mean, it's like... A, and it's got a, it's like a sweet synthesized score. It's like a, it's yes. a mix of horror and noir. That's what makes that... Yeah, like, such it's a, a tribute to John Carpenter yeah. to me. That's why I see it as, like, it's like James Cameron making a John Carpenter movie. It's like the sequel's a different genre from the first term, besides having the same, you know, okay. characters involved. I mean, yeah. one's an action sci-fi epic, and the the, the other is a, this this slasher movie that happens to involve a robot instead of an alien or a yeah. monster or something like that, which is very, actually very yeah, similar love... to Alien and Aliens. And I love Arnold as the, the evil Terminator. I think that I just thought it was great back then. It was freaked me out. I thought it was scary as heck. And um, the other, the T one thousand, I was just like, oh man, get away from him. Yeah. Good, but Arnold, Arnold scared me. Like, <laughs> you know, like, he was just pesky. The T one thousand was pesky and t- he was intimidating in his own way. But Arnold was just like frightening in that movie. Just, yeah. I mean, he brought it. He really, I mean, he really did. There's, there's a reason, you know, he's. That's the role he's always thrown with. It's just he's so great in that first movie, um, and I yeah. I just Kyle Reese has that great model, or just you know, he's explaining to Sarah yeah. Connor where he says it can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely won't stop. Like it's just 
it allows us to imagine more of like the, this future world than, than showing and stuff. And I, I really think it's through expositional dialogue, it, it keeps you captivated still without being just boring exposition. It's actually interesting and lets you play around in your head with what's going on in the future and how things are. Let's jump over to Abe. Sure. Uh, again, in no particular order, in the, I have Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jurassic Park, Princess Mononoke, and Casablanca. And the one I'll chat about is Casablanca. Not because it's on, like, number two lists of AFI and whatever else, or wherever it's Just placed, number two? But, Might as well, you know, not even be on the list. <laughs> but, uh, honestly, this is a movie that I've heard about, but I'd never watched until 11th grade history class. Uh, and I was like, man, why don't we just watch Back to the Future? Because... That one takes place in the 1950s. It's kind of historically accurate, historically in quotes. It's a fun movie. Everyone's going to enjoy it. And my history teacher was like, no, we're going to watch Casablanca. It's one of my favorite movies. And I was very uh, against it. And then I started watching it. I was like, this is a really good movie. Um, I got really into the characters, and I got really into the storyline. And it's uh, it's kind of depressing, and it's kind of sad. Um, and I used to always think that Film actors and actresses from the 1940s or the 1950s or pre-1990s when I was born, uh, they weren't as good-looking or attractive. I was like, Ingrid Bergman is really attractive. And that completely changed my, my view on Casablanca. And I, I to this day, I, if it's on, I will watch it. If somebody's watching it out of their home, I will watch it. It's a, it's a very good movie. So we're to Maxwell. Okay. Um... So starting with 15, we have Pinocchio, uh, and then The Red Shoes, 12 Angry Men, Brian De Palma's Blowout, and Toy Story. Um, and I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and talk about two movies. I, looking back, I didn't intentionally couple them in this same group of five on purpose, but I think it'll, it's, it's interesting, and um, that's Pinocchio and Toy Story. And what I think is interesting about both of those movies is um, they represent um, the same uh, studio at two very different points in their evolution. Um, you know, uh, Pinocchio was the second feature-length animated film Walt Disney Animation made in 1940. You know, Walt Disney produced it himself. And it's really kind of this perfect movie um, that has, I think, every Disney movie that has come after that owes something to its... Um, sense of morality and that um, the theme of when you wish upon a star um, and then you jump forward in the company's history and they acquired this company called Pixar and you have Toy Story which is the first feature length computer animated movie um, and it's just this wonderful joyous movie that you know kind of shattered all expectations we had about what technology and computers were going to be capable of, of bringing to cinema and I, I love both of them because they, uh, you know, satisfy my intelligence as an adult, but at the same time, they both have the ability to bring me back to this sort of childlike sense of wonder. And when I watch them, I sort of just escape into these animated worlds with these colorful characters. And I think they make an interesting comparison. I mean, you know, talking about Snow White instead of Pinocchio maybe would have been a more obvious choice because that was first, and then Toy Story was first in its um, era. But, you know, I like Pinocchio more, so there you go. I want to commend you on putting Blowout in there. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah, yeah you know, I wish I could talk about all these movies. Blowout is a great, great movie. It's a great, but, you 
Travolta performance that's just oh, I think yeah. his best work on film probably. Yeah. Well, that and Swordfish. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> My top uh, or this this batch of films here on uh, number. These, these, these numbers, I think, until I get to like my top three, like these numbers are pretty much just whatever. Like <laughs> these are all great movies for my eyes. Uh, but I have uh, uh, the Coen Brothers Fargo, the original Tarantino Rodriguez Grindhouse Joint from Dust Till Dawn, Christopher McQuarrie's The Way of the Gun, um, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, which I really can almost not say without saying Snatch as well. And the same goes. The same goes for me saying Clerks without saying Dogma because those both of those I just they're interchangeable to me as the directors of Guy Ritchie and Kevin Smith. Just my favorite works of theirs. I'm going to talk about The Way of the Gun though um, because I think that's the most obscure pick and maybe my almost my entire list because um, I I don't think many people have seen this movie. I do, I I think it has it's at, on the cusp of even getting to like small cult fare, but. It's not even there yet. I think it's just it's this this weird outlier of a movie that stars Benicio del Toro and Ryan Phillippe and like what is this? But something I mean among the things that I like about the way of the gun, which I think is just this terrific dark comedic crime thriller with hints of neo noir and this anti western aspect going, is that before I saw this movie, I was never a big fan of westerns, the old western genre. I've seen them. And I've generally just found them at that time to be just kind of slow and like, oh, all right, Clint Eastwood's there. That's cool, I guess. Um, but never something that really grabbed me. The Way of the Gun is this kind of modern anti-Western film in terms of having kind of outlaws as your lead characters and them going after kind of a, a bounty, essentially. They're using kidnapping and and you have these other kind of guys as well who are also kind of bounty hunters and you have a lead person that has all the money. There's a lot of elements that just connect it to a Western of old. And something about this movie just clicked with me in all the right ways because I was able to get what was going on, despite not loving Westerns, because I did understand the genre is just one that didn't interest me too much. And because of that movie, I went back and watched a lot of older Westerns. Like, there's movies like Tombstone where, like, that's just fun. Uh, but then there's, you know, there's there's other movies like... Fistful of Dollars, basically the Dollars trilogy, and even once a lot of Leone, a lot of uh, spaghetti westerns, and then even others in the more kind of American scheme of things, like Magnificent Seven, or a lot of what John Wayne was doing. And it's a genre that I've come to love more, and I largely attribute that to what The Way of the Gun did, which is insanely dark, even though it is trying to be funny in a lot of its instances, but it's still it still managed to inspire me to check out the genre that essentially inspired the making of this movie that goes along with kind of other crime thrillers and stuff as well. Um, with that said, talking about the the movie in general, I mean, I Ryan Phillippe is not an actor that I think many people think, man, he's terrific. But Way of the Gun was like the one time where I'm like, this thing can be really good if he, try, if he tries hard enough. <laughs> Benicio del Toro just like walks away by doing just like, he says almost nothing in the film, but just has so much personality in the way he handles himself that it just makes it so wonderful to see. James Caan steps in just to just to show that he can still act, even, even though he, he, after being in shows like like these random TV shows, it's like, oh yeah, I'm also still kind of a badass that could beat you up, and I'm like 75 years old. Um, <laughs> and it... It has two like amazing two things that I just like haven't seen in movies. It has a it has a car chase in reverse where there's a scene where instead of having a high speed car chase, it has people kind of wheeling the, their yes. car along. That's absolutely fantastic to watch. It's, and it it plays around with the with geography and how people handle that kind of situation as opposed to seeing just cars being mashed up and wrecked. 
And lastly, there's a this amazing gunfight at the end of that movie that just I think rivals a lot of a lot of very big Hollywood gunfights. It's just utterly fantastic to see how it plays out and how the conclusion goes and where we're even left with these characters by the end. So yeah, The Way of the Gun is a movie that I absolutely love, and that is why it's among my the, men, the this long list of my top favorite films of all time. I often think that when I come down to L.A., that you and I would just drive around, and then we'd just get out in alleyways and do what Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philby did in the alleyways. We're just like duck and walk and kind of ghost ride that car. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and if there's ever a movie that you wanted to see Sarah Silverman get like punched in the mouth really hard, that's the that's the movie for you to <laughs> yes. <think. laughs> no, I I did see that film in theaters. It was a pretty empty theater, mind you. Um, and there's one scene in there that, that always stuck out. It's the end of the first big first act shootout, but most of the shootouts off screen, which is also pretty cool. Yeah. But you know the, the 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 characters get away, and the camera lingers for about five seconds on the half dozen innocent bystanders that have been killed in this entire shootout, drawing away just as you see a guy cradling his dead wife in the car. I mean, you talk about the film being dark, and I, I like Christopher Clurry as an action director because his violence hurts. Yeah, the same with You know, there is nothing remote, you know, the Jack Reacher, and there's nothing glamorous about his violence. And I really look forward to seeing what he's going to do with the Mission Impossible series. For sure, yeah, that's, and I mean, obviously he won an Oscar for writing the usual stuff, but I mean, it's, yes. it's, He's someone I've stuck by because of these things and the way he frames his sequences and stuff. It's just, I <laughs> I really like the way it goes. Uh, I can talk about it way more, but I'm not going to because we have a lot of things to do still. Uh, let's get to another topic here, um, which we've brought up before, but I want to kind of emphasize more now. The idea of best films versus favorite films. Obviously, we're talking about our favorite movies, and Scott, among others, have been happy to point out that a lot of these movies may not be the best films, but they're movies that are that are fitting for them, that they're movies that they can watch again and again, and they work for who they are. Um, but then you do have best films, and something like, like Abe mentioned Casablanca, a lot of people would say that's you know one of the best movies ever made. Um, you can look at this. There's, there's a huge example. I think, I mean, you can look at these AFI lists and you see things like Citizen Kane or what, North by Northwest, like a lot of just all these came, they want to open the bag of worms on this, but there's, <laughs> there's a ton of films that do get that kind of recognition as this is kind of the best that film has to offer. With that said, what do you guys have to say about the, the, the concept of best films versus favorite films? Well, sometimes there's an overlap mm-hmm, for sure. Sometimes the best, yeah, sometimes there's an overlap, but the best films are sometimes they're one shots or you see it that one time you get everything from it. It was, great production great performances everything else but it's not something you're gonna just go back to but it was it was great while you spent the time with it and i mean that's the case for me a lot of time and they don't always have like the same kind of rewatchability they make their impact on the first first time you know i tend to like own some of those and stuff but i mean they're not the one they're, they're sometimes they're ones that you have to be in the certain mood to revisit let's let when when you Let's uh, let's talk about that a bit because that's interesting. I mean, there's a move for like for me for a movie that like I wouldn't watch again. I mean, I'll watch it. I mean, it's not like I'm never gonna watch this movie again. But a movie that like isn't one that says, "Man, this is one that I need to keep watching because of how great it is." Schindler's List. I think that's a brilliant right. film, and I'm sure one of yeah. you might have that on a list. Even I I don't think I could watch that movie more than once a decade, um, unless I like really had a reason to. 
but at the same time, I recognize that it probably is one of the. It's certainly one of the best films of the '90s. Certainly one of the best films of the last of, of the last you know many decades of years. But it's not one that I think suggests rewatchability in the same way as something like Casablanca, where I think you can watch Casablanca again and again and again and get a lot of things out of it, or even uh-huh. something like like Citizen Kane, which is not going to be on my list, but is a movie that I consider pretty amazing and one that I could I could watch a lot of times. And I, it's weird to approach movies like that where you know of the kind of legacy they have, this kind of quality that that suggests, like, man, something about this movie really stuck out because a lot of people really think this is a great thing. I don't know if I'm going to like it. Then you end up watching it. He's like, oh, I, I get why that is that way. I think there might be a difference between the like the group of us talking with that too, as opposed to like a general person, because you know, as being you know film buffs, writers, and we probably have logged enough hours to be considered experts from watching films uh, that you know we look to the prestigious films where a lot of people might ignore them, or you know, how could you watch Citizen Kane over and over again when you go to the general audience speaking? But we could watch it because of the you know there's technical achievements, we see a lot of different things in it, we know movie history and how it fits in there so that is a great movie and does have the rewatchability but just like you know the general audience member that's not going to make the top 10 list probably not even 100 well i think that also goes back to something we were discussing earlier about the rather populist nature of the you know the top 20 you know the top 20 in that you know I happen to think Munich is Spielberg's, you know, for example, Munich is an out-and-out masterpiece. It's one of, you know, probably my favorite Spielberg film, but I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. It's funny, I'm sorry to cut you off, it's so funny you mentioned that, because that's a movie that I actually really do love, and I, I've watched yeah. Munich a lot. Like, I don't I don't yeah. know why, but it's something about it makes it entirely more watchable to me than other Spielberg. Well, uh, like Scott, and I are, Scott and I are both parents, so sitting down for three hours of Munich is... Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> that's fair, too. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I mean, a lot of this does come down to oh. kind of our age and who we are. I think that, that yeah. is something that... That's and, and you know, when I, I, you know, figure out what DVDs, if any, to buy of late is also, you know, am I going to watch this with my kid in the next five years? Hmm. Um... But even so, you know, again, something like, you know, the obvious example would be, you know, how often are we going to re- rewatch 12 Years a Slave? Although I would argue there are, you know, very entertaining portions of that film. Um, but nonetheless, that would be a movie that arguably could be considered one of the best movies in, you know, recent years. But is it going to be anyone's favorite movie that they're going to watch when they're in a bad mood or going to watch to remind them why they love movies? Eh. Maybe not. We have a weird agenda. Or, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I, I think that also tends toward why the our favorite films are often the ones that are, you know, exciting action adventures or knee-slapping comedies or what have you. They're the they're ones, the ones that are easy that, to escape. Yes, they're the ones that we revisit over and over again. Um, but... I also, you know, when I do my, you know, end of year list, I'm always very careful to call it my favorite films of whatever year. And part of that is so I can have an excuse to include films like Shanghai Nights or Kung Fu Panda 2, you know, films that I, you know, friggin' love, but I don't want to get into a debate about whether or not, you know, they're the best film of any given year. Um, on the other hand, you could argue that maybe <clears throat> difference between favorite and best is somewhat of a cop-out, you know, because, you know, I should have to defend, say, Kung Fu Panda, and I can, frankly, if I have to. But on the other hand, simply calling, oh, no, that's one of my favorite films, not one of the best films, don't worry. But as far as the difference, again, I, I think favorite are are the ones 
that you <clears throat> revisit over and over again when you want to remind yourself why you love movies? Um, I really struggle to differentiate between favorite and best for two reasons. Um, the first reason is that who am I to qualify something as best? Sure, we can watch a movie and um, critique certain objective or seemingly objective qualities about it, cinematography, acting, writing, performance. At the same time, though, how objective is it really? If films are art, which of course they are, art is intangible and art shouldn't subscribe to a set of rules. Um, and, you know, what one person may think is incredible cinematography, another person may not agree. So I struggle with, with, with myself personally saying anything is the best. The, the second thing, and my second reason about why I really struggle to make this differentiation, and don't get me wrong, I certainly understand all of the arguments you are making, and it's clear in my head why many people do differentiate and why they pick certain films to fit in the two various categories. But the second reason is that if, at the end of the day, the reason why I watch films is for enjoyment and because I get something out of them. And so whether it's favorite or best or fun or depressing, if I get something out of them, it, it's, it's the best because it, it, it pulled something from me. Even if it's just a comedy like Shanghai Nights, if that movie was so good at making me laugh or gave me such good action scenes, then who cares if it has stellar cinematography or if it's, you know, has great meaning to it. And, and, and that's why I, I, I can't personally differentiate. To me, best and favorite, I don't care. They're just my top films. And maybe that's a cop-out in and of itself, but I feel pretty strongly about that. Oh, I, I certainly agree with you, because I'm hey. like, well, if they're my favorites, shouldn't they be, aren't they the best to me? Exactly. So, so I mean, there's, there's that borderline cross. Like, I can see, uh, with my arguments, I'm seeing where someone would, you know, differentiate and where <laughs> I myself can, can see along the lines of differentiating but then there's always that question of like well if i'm making a list my favorite should be the best the ones that i think they're the best because i enjoyed them so much and i constantly go back to them right so. it's also subjective the way we watch and critique films is on a personal basis so why i don't see the re i don't get it it's like these are my films these are the ones i love best favorite who cares they might as well be synonymous that's a very valid point and you know i do agree with basically everything that everyone has said there's a lot of gray in that um, but when it comes to like the best and favorite, I tend to kind of just compartmentalize things, which I know that Maxwell probably would disagree with. Um, but it's just in terms of, uh, I'm paying attention to a lot of the technical categories and whatever else. And again, it is one of those situations where some of the best films I don't revisit all the time. Um, I'm not going to watch 12 Years of Slave over and over and over again. Um, I might not watch Gravity over and over and over again. Um. I'm never going to watch Grave of the Fireflies ever again. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it certainly is a situation where if something hits me on multiple levels and it's just pumping on all cylinders, so to speak, um, that truly is one of the best films. And it's not necessarily one of my favorite films, but it certainly is something that I, I award with my own personal gold star. So you're right, Maxwell, that it's very subjective and, um, Aaron and I, and I'm sure some of the friends on the podcast, we had picked The Grey as one of the top films of 2011. And 
sadly, it came out in January 2011, and nobody paid attention to come awards time. But 2012. Oh, 2012. Thanks, Scott. Um, but no, 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 that's fine. Uh, but it's one of the best films that I've ever seen, uh, and it's probably because it made me think very deeply about the meaning and had some very nice cinematography, a lot of the stuff that was well done in it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not one of those things where I would say that's that's uh, that's my top thirty or my top twenty. It's just very difficult to pinpoint that. Uh, but I do differentiate it when it comes down to, uh, I guess, the context in which someone's asking me something, and that would help me differentiate between top and best. And but I do agree that it's it's not very clear. Uh, very good thoughts. I'm, re- I'm really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, let's uh, let's throw it again out to another uh, another recording that I've I've previously made. Or in the future, mate. I might know there's still ones I have to do. So here we go. Can't we actually see his face? Because it's not a video podcast. <laughs> I know, but who cares if it's not a video? Can I still see it? If I turn, I can turn the camera on. Turn the camera on. Turn the camera on. Turn your camera on. How do we do that? On the Skype thing, there should be a button that says turn video on. It's on. There, mine's on. Happy. Hello. Oh, see, that's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> You're not naked. Yeah, I put something on very quickly because I was going to turn the video on. <laughs> I'm really quick like that. This is so much better. <laughs> like... do, you, do you guys always just do this without looking at each other? Yeah. All right, so with me now, I have Jordan and his wife-to-be. I guess when this podcast comes out, you guys will be married at that point. But his wife is <laughs> on next Tuesday. Oh, we will be married. We will be. Yeah, so it's, I have Jordan here and Caitlin. How are oh. you guys doing today? So good. Great. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing excellent, of course. It's almost your birthday. It, it is almost your birthday, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about what your guys' favorite movies Happy are. Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we have no time. This is a tight <laughs> podcast. We have no time for this. I need you to tell me your favorite okay, movies. Okay, 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 okay. Go. Wait, what? Your go. Oh, what's your favorite movie? No, you go first. Um, I Heart Huckabees. It's probably one of my favorite movies. Really? I love that movie. Oh, wow. you say it like I that. feel like I'm going to have all the same movies as you. <clears throat> um, I, I think it's like so unique <gasps> and original. Uh, I saw that movie, that's the most times I've uh, seen a movie in the theaters, is I Heart Huggabees. Uh, 11 times. 11, to- 11 times. <laughs> but granted, I was working at uh, Arclight, so I saw it for free. And Legend is another favorite. Good old, good old Tom Cruise. Tim Curry, you guys know that one? Yes, yes. Mm-mm, yes, I, I know Legend. Oh, really? No, I've never seen it. Oh, you'd love it. I saw it when I was like four, and it's the movie where I saw. I was like, I want to do that. I want to like make these amazing motion pictures, and it pretty much started this obsession with wanting to make films. And it's like whenever I'm sick, I'll put Legend on, and like I know that it's not like an outstanding movie. Like it has so many flaws. But I love it anyway, like the look of it and uh, like the music. And I love Tom Cruise in it. And uh, uh, so, so when you're sick, you have a big bowl of curry. Is that what you're saying? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> OK, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> no, that was good. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that <laughs> next time I'm sick. I want to be sick like tomorrow so I can say, where's legend? I need a big bowl of curry. <laughs> what about you? You like Goonies a lot. I do, but I think one of my favorite movies in the world is The Legend of 1900, actually. Mm. I don't really have that much to say about it. I mean, I love the music. I love Tim Roth. I love the whole reference to Jelly Roll Morton. That's really what it is. And every time I watch it, I cry for like 20 minutes afterwards. So that must be doing something good. (laughs) Really, that's what it is. (laughs) 
Um, oh, Batman Returns. It's my favorite Batman movie. Yeah, Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And uh, it's probably my favorite superhero movie. Like, once again, I know it's so flawed, and I understand why people hate it. And I don't begrudge them for it. <laughs> but I can't help but love the movie. I've always said I've always called that a it's a it's a terrible Batman movie, but it's a great Tim Burton movie. Yeah, yeah, and and all the reasons why the comic book fans hate the movie are like reasons I love it. <laughs> like when he he blows up that guy, he throws him down the well, and he explodes, and fans are like he he shouldn't kill people. I'm like, but it's so enjoyable in the movie, um, and and just just the look of it. I I could pause any frame of that film and hang it up on a wall and mm. it'll just look brilliant uh and it's probably the soundtrack i listen to the most uh whenever i'm doing like homework or writing or just driving to school I'll just just put... sad, sad oswald cobblepot music <laughs> it's it's a uh, one of uh, my favorite elfman scores it's just one of my favorite scores in general i bought the expanded edition from La La Land Records. <laughs> a whole 120 minutes of extra music. <laughs> you would. <laughs> like, you're not getting married any longer. Who's <laughs> this freak? No, I love it. What about you? I think, like, when you were saying you put on Legend when you're sick, I could do pretty much any Hayao Miyazaki movie. I think Spirited Away is my, my favorite. Spirited Away is my favorite Miyazaki. Yeah, one of my favorite. That and I really it, I'm, it ties with Howl's Moving Castle for me too. I think the music in that is gorgeous. What is his? I don't even know the composer's name really. Actually, John Williams. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a really long name I can't pronounce, unfortunately. I don't know it offhand, but yeah, I agree with you. He's everything that goes into this Miyazaki movies, including the soundtracks, are wonderful. Jordan, give me one more, and then I can wrap this up. <laughs> okay, one more, one more. Um. Oof. I love um, the Beauty and the Beast from, was it the 30s? I, I always forget the director, um, the French director. I know what you're referring to, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, it, it's like a dream I would have. I, I, I love that that quality of it and, uh, and the costumes and and, and just like, I, I, I still watch it and I have no idea how they, how they did certain effects and it's mind-blowing. We should all watch it. Yeah, I always forget the director's name. Jean something. Jean-Luc Picard, got it. Yes. Yeah. Make it so. <laughs> uh, and The Exorcist. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think that's the scariest film I've ever seen. We were just talking about that. Yeah, it still uh, makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Why? You said you had a reason, though, because of all the um, silence. Oh, yeah, just because... Uh, one aspect of The Exorcist that most horror movies I don't don't uh, use is the use of silence. Like there are moments in that film which is completely silent and it's so unsettling. And horror movies now they always have to have some sort of background noise or or score uh, in in the scene. It's like oh, it'd be so much more terrifying if we're just completely silent. And The Exorcist does that brilliantly. Well, cool. With all with with that in mind, this is this is going to be a long episode, so I got to wrap this up with you guys. But Jordan, Caitlin, thank you very much for thanks, Aaron, going over some of your favorite movies with me. Woo! Thank you, and happy birthday. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> my love. Thanks for the thoughts on that. That was very informative. Again, thanks for that. Thanks for taking the time out to do that. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate all of our guests who you know 
work work hand over fist to be on this podcast with us, especially some that are you know completely across the country and have you know even traveled and still managed to make it on this I podcast. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got me the song. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, all right. Let's uh, let's do uh, your checks and mail, Scott. Let's do another um, <laughs> let's do another batch of five here. Um, let's start. Let's uh, let's start with we'll start with Maxwell. How about that? Sure. Um, all right. Starting with ten, I have Playtime, Jaws, Psycho, Singing in the Rain, and Back to the Future. Um, and I'll just talk really, really quickly about Singing in the Rain. Um, if you haven't seen it, see it. Um, even if you're afraid of musicals, give it a try. Um, to me, the movie somehow is the cinematic embodiment of all human joy. It is just pure joy from start to to end. It it just I I, I can barely articulate the response that I have. There was um last year or the year before TCM sponsored a series of of in cinema revival screenings of classic movies and this played and it sold out so they added a second showtime and people were applauding after the musical numbers which is of course expected in theater but for a a movie that's as old as singing in the rain is to still elicit such a response from an audience of people who are well aware that the singing and dancing you just saw is not happening live and that those people cannot hear you that they were still you know brought to cheer after each number speaks to how much fun and how joyous and how wonderful it is. It also is, is you know, uh, a very thoughtful film about the the change of, of that occurred in cinema between um, silent films and the talkies, something which the artist uh, more recently dealt with as well. I would argue Singing in the Rain does it better. But regardless, it's not just fun. It's about something. But still, it's just... It's joy, and that to me cannot be rivaled by almost any film I've seen. Sorry, that wasn't as short as I thought it was going to be. You'll pay for that. <laughs> for your paycheck. No, you, <laughs> What's that about being paid here? <laughs> Checks haven't been signed yet. You haven't gotten your bitcoins yet. I. <laughs> so that's what those things were. <laughs> Let's go to Scott. Scott, what do you think your next five? Oh, let's see. Okay. Almost Famous, Gravity, The Sixth Sense, Fellowship of the Ring, and Airplane. And this is where I struggle which one to actually talk about. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Let me very quickly say, because I've talked about Gravity a lot on, on this show, actually, one reason or another. Uh, yeah. I love the fact that one of my favorite films of all time is something that just came out last year. Um. That, that, that a film as recent as 2013 oh. could bring about the same feelings as the films I loved when I was a kid and as I grew up. Moving on. Um, Airplane, funniest film I've ever seen. I still feel that way. I felt that way for 25 years. Um, Fellowship of the Ring, I feel, and to a certain extent as well as Sixth Sense, almost needs to be defended in this day and age. I mean, The Fellowship of the Ring was a film that got rave reviews when it came out. It, it was a ridiculously successful film, box office-wise. It did something like $800 million worldwide back when not every movie did that. Uh, you know, 11 Academy Award nominations. Arguably should have won a few more than it did. And yet, you know, you know just shy of you know, 13 years later, you kind of have to remind people how good this series was. 
And, you know, you, you, Aaron mentioned about sort of, you know, leaving off the Star Wars films and, you know, arguably the Indiana Jones films as well, because it almost goes without saying. And I was tempted to do the same with Lord of the Rings. I, I think Lord of the Rings is probably the best cinematic trilogy of all time. And the reason why I made a point to include Fellowship, which by a nose is my favorite over Return of the King, is that we have kind of forgotten how good these films really were, how unexpectedly good these films were, especially in the last two years when, when Peter Jackson went back to Middle Earth with, I would argue, middling results of The Hobbit. You know, you, you watch The Hobbit, Unexpected Journey, Hobbit Desolation of Smog, Smog, however it's supposed to be pronounced. Smog. Exactly. Yeah. Smog. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and you kind of wonder, you know, were, were, were the Phil's films really that good, or was it just the shock of the new, you know, what have you? And, you know, I did go back and revisit at least Fellowship of the Ring, and no, no, it really was that good. You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is still, in my opinion, the greatest cinematic trilogy of all time. I think it's better than Star Wars, for what that's worth. Uh, although I have not, you know, I'm not going to bash Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, and I think when you have films that touch a chord many, many years ago and then sort of get taken for granted over the years, or, you know, for one reason or another, their, their reputation declines when the filmmakers maybe don't follow it up with something quite as good, you do need to remind people every once in a while that, no, no, they really did hit it out of the park with that one. You know, say what you will about The Last Airbender or The Happening or whatever. The Sixth Sense really was awesome 15 years ago. Um, say what you will about The Lovely Bones or The Hobbit. Fellowship of the Ring really was everything you remember it being back in 2001. And it still remains one of my all-time favorite films. I mean, if you didn't think Meet the Feebles Peter Jackson was going to make one of the best film trilogies ever, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> He was coming off the Frighteners, which was obviously you know, everyone loved. Exactly. I love the Frighteners, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. I'll um, I'll go next. Um, for my next five here, um, I have L.A. Confidential. Sorry, Curtis Hanson's. I like saying the directors. Curtis Hanson's L.A. Confidential. Tony Scott's True Romance. David O. Russell's Three Kings. Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. And Fernando Moray's City of God. Um, I'm going to talk about City of God because this movie is brilliant to me. I am, and I'm going to speak about another movie real quick. I love God. I love Goodfellas. I, I think that's a, a top three Scorsese for me, and it's it, I can watch that movie endlessly. Um, but that's and it's probably ju- it'd be in my top thirty maybe. City of God, I think is better than Goodfellas in what it's trying to do, and it they can they just they're both these kind of gangster stories of this young person who's kind of caught up in it, and while Ray Liotta you know wanted to be a gangster. This, the main lead character Rocket was just kind of forced into the life of gangsters, despite not even being really much of a. He's not even a gangster. He's kind of on the outskirts of it. This movie, set in set in, uh, in uh, down in Brazil, like it's just so creative in its in its filmmaking. It's incredibly well done as a coming of age story slash gangster drama slash like period piece. It has all these things going on, and it's so, so marvelous, marvelously directed in how it portrays this kind of different stages of life, the different decades that we kind of go through. And the cinematography is just brilliant. The, the soundtrack is this just great, like kind of it has the sense of flavor of the world that you're, you know, existing in. And again, throughout different decades too. And you see all the styles evolve and you get to know like this kind of host of different characters and how they change throughout, you know, as they grow older and how they differentiate between each other and how they grow apart or how they, 
become friends. It's just I find I found I watched City of God when I was in college, uh, which is when it came out when I was in college, and so it's not like <laughs> it's not like I've waited a long time to see it or anything. It was just or out there around that time, but it it was one where I sat down and I watched like oh I've heard good things about it, but I was just transfixed by it. And it was another movie where I watched the very next day because I'm like I need to get more of this movie. A lot the all of these movies on these on this list that I have here I've seen at least ten times. I'm a huge fan of rewatching movies. I know some people don't wa- don't rewatch movies often or don't why you watch them to the extent that I will rewatch a lot of movies, but I love rewatching my favorite movies. The the kind of sensation I get from these movies that I consider to be my favorite, they it doesn't dull for me. And something like City of God, it just feels so special for what it does and how it kind of has these different ways of showing showing you a, a traditional gangster story but from a different perspective based on kind of the foreign setting and the age of the characters involved and how some of its lead characters involved are involved. It's, it's, it's just something I'll never forget. And I, I just absolutely love city of God. Let's go to Brandon. How about that? All right. Um, 10 through six for me is, uh, the Godfather, the original one from 72, uh, alien, uh, the 1979 one. There's no S on it. Um, Alfred Hitchcock psycho, uh, at eight, followed by Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest at number seven. And number six, 12 Monkeys. And I guess I got to talk about 12 Monkeys. Um, This movie, I didn't see it in the theater. I didn't know much. 1995 was a weird year because up till then, like, Brad Pitt was just that pretty face that all the girls liked. And I was like, ugh, this guy's nothing. And that year, he turned me right around with um, Seven and 12 Monkeys. And his performance in 12 Monkeys is one of his best. Um that's not the full reason I like it, but he's he's quite outstanding in his little supporting role and just crazy. And I don't, I don't know if he's achieved quite those levels since. He tries to play too many variations on straight Brad Pitt a lot of the times, and this one's, like, really, really different. And it's not, like, extreme, like something like California where he's, like, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but um, He snores really loud in California? I don't no, know. he, like, snorts. Correct. I was kidding. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, those guys couldn't spell California. Well, David Duchovny sneezes a lot, so it measures that. It balances. <laughs> yes, um, I, I this was a rental uh, weekend. It came or the week it came out on video, like a Friday night. Um, watched it with my parents, and I was just glued. It was this like time travel story. I wasn't really familiar with a lot of Terry Gilliam outside of Monty Python stuff at the time. Uh, it was just an interesting time travel story, and the hook. And twist like blew my mind at the time. I guess that's an overused phrase, but that's what happened. I was just like, "Whoa!" And I, I've always gone back to it, trying to piece different things together, see it in different lights. I just really like this story, and and some of the, like there's a lot of little Easter eggs hidden throughout the film, and it's really neat to go back to after you know what happens. I just kind of see the the film as like a circular loop too. Um, Gosh, it's got it's got style. It's got some great performances. Bruce Willis was doing something different at the time. This was like around his um, Pulp Fiction and stuff. Like he wasn't it wasn't just like you know typical action role with him. Um, it's probably is it Madeline Stowe's probably her best movie. It just uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was terrific. I was engaged, loved it. I what is one I wanted to watch right over again. Um, after I saw it, because I, I was like, oh, does all this work out? Does like, how does this work? And I had many thoughts on the story, and it just, it was crazy. Like, I wanted to make something like that. I want to be like the guy who comes up with that genius story, uh, like Twelve Monkeys. And I, I love that movie. I've, I've always 
try to make it a point to watch it during the year. It's just fantastic. If you twisted my arm, I'd probably say that Bruce Willis has my two favorite time travel movies, which are Looper and Twelve Monkeys. I think he's I think Twelve Monkeys is absolutely brilliant in what it's yeah. doing. It's yeah, oh, no, that's my like, favorite time it, travel movie. It's a movie I don't hear many people like bring up ever too. And it's Gilliam's biggest success. I mean, yeah, in terms of kind of mainstream fare and like all the work that he's done. Like Brazil gets a lot of credit as you know cult love, but I mean, in terms of like people going out to see a Terry Gilliam movie, Twelve Monkeys was a huge hit when yeah. it came out. Yeah, I mean, I. What? No, I would argue it's his best movie because of that. I mean, it is absolutely a Terry Gilliam movie through and through. Yet it is just mainstream enough that it was actually a big hit. Uh, Abe, let's get your five. Sure. Yeah, the next batch is uh, Stand by Me, Brick, Finding Nemo, Toy Story Two, and Home Alone. And I'll talk about Home Alone. Home Alone is uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies ever. I tend to watch it a lot during Christmas. I know that Aaron has mixed feelings on this one. Um, well, you're, you, Home Alone's the first movie that any of you guys have mentioned that I actually don't like them. Home Alone sucks. Home Alone sucks. Excuse me. I know that it's not that good. <laughs> but, I remember, but I was eight. Kevin McAllister was eight. We were saying all the same lines. I, I could remember. I could recite that movie verbatim up to a certain point in my life. Um, and I remember that uh, my parents lived in France for a while uh, before I was born. And so there was this joke when they're all packing and they're like, Kevin, you're what the French call les incompetents. And I, just, I was like, man, I wish that I knew French because I would laugh so hard. And then I asked my dad and I was like, dad, what does les incompetents mean? He's like, the incompetent. And I was like, that's not funny. Correct. <laughs> 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 right. I like I like to picture young Abe just sitting there like his face suddenly changing like, that's Whoa. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. But I, I especially like the score by John Williams. I like the the mix of the Christmas uh, music that they have. I still listen to the uh, the Brenda Lee rocking around the Christmas tree. Uh, and <coughs> I do like the uh, the sentimental moments, like when Kevin's going to the church to go meet old man Marley, and they have this conversation about – a ridiculous conversation, by the way, about why he doesn't see his son anymore. But um, no, I, I like the uh, the feeling of it. And that's why I like Home Alone. It's one of my favorites. It's good that you brought that up because this actually gets to the next topic I want to get to before we get to another cameo and then our, you know, final five, mm-hmm. um, which is nostalgia. In my personal list, I can't say that I, I – while it reflects movies I watched when I was growing up, some there I wouldn't say that it's based on kind of a nostalgic, a nostalgic pleasure I get from seeing said movies. Nostalgia in general, when I think about, like, favorite movies of mine or movies that I love or movies that I love from my childhood, it's not something that generally affects my opinion of things. I can say that I've liked movies as a child more than I like them now, but at the same time, something, I mean, I I suddenly recognize that I, I, I wasn't always like an amazing film person, and I'm not an amazing film <laughs> scholar now, but there are certain, there's a, it, I'll, I'll bring it to Jumanji. Uh, Jumanji is a movie that I saw when I was very young. I never liked Jumanji. I know there's a lot, and I can say the same for Hook and even Mrs. Doubtfire, the old Robin Williams movies, which is weird. But <laughs> there, there, there's, there's something to be. I think there's something to be said for the fact that even at a young age, th- these movies that I know a lot of people that are of my age, or at least in my generation, they really love these movies. But it reflects kind of a time from when they were young. The fact that I don't love these movies, and I haven't loved these movies from when I was that age when I saw them. I think that speaks to why I am a certain way about movies. 
And so applying nostalgia to that, I can't say that I'm incredibly nostalgic about a lot of these, you know, movies I saw when I was there. There's movies like The Sandlot, where I think it's actually a legitimately good movie, not just one that I love because I was young and like, look, there's kids running in a pool and there's a dog and stuff. Like, there's <laughs> things about a lot of these movies that you see when you're a child, yet you can, I've somehow managed to kind of separate the ones that I consider to be good movies, like Sandlot, and the ones that I consider to be bad movies, like Three Ninjas. Um, I, I'm curious. Do you think nostalgia has affected? Do you think nostalgia has affected how you guys kind of see which ones are your favorite movies? Or not? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, like, we. I think it helped. I can see like you do um, other people's likings to nostalgia because I think a a film from Scott and I's generation that gets a lot of that nostalgia is The Goonies. Yep. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I never, I didn't care for Goonies much back then. I don't go back to it now. I own it because it came with Gremlins and Gremlins 2 in Blu-ray. <laughs> Sounds um, like amazing that's a great package. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got it for twelve bucks. Um, what came with what, what came with uh, the Monster Squad? The Monster Squad, yeah. Um, <laughs> nothing. Monster Squad comes by itself, um, as it should. Yeah, uh, which I I like the Monster Squad better of that and the yeah. Goonies, but. Um, that's that's one from my generation. I've just never got. We do have the hook people that does. I mean, I've never like Aaron and you and I have had a hook conversation before, but I, I honestly I've never desired to go back to it. I, I, I remember, honestly find it baffling how much love there is for hook. <laughs> there wasn't for a decade or so. Yeah. And then hey, it was. It's more like hey, remember that? Oh yeah. And then they just decide they like the movie or something <laughs> again. But um. Because I don't remember being crazy about Hook when I watched it back then. I've never gone back. I have no desire to. So that should say something. Two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, it's a long movie. But uh, nostalgia with me, I, I think there's uh, it's part, but not fully. I think there's some some memories with the movie, yes, but there's uh, much stronger reasons as to you know why I've liked it. Well, I think there there are a certain. There are certain movies that I saw when I was very young that I'm aware that I'm fond of because of how much I liked them when I was very young. But just because my first favorite movie was Rocky IV doesn't mean I'm not aware that Rocky IV is terrible. Or, you know, something like Labyrinth that I watched a gajillion times when I was, you know, a wee one. Um, you know, and, and while I can say, yes, I enjoy Monster Squad and I appreciate the things about it that work, I'm not going to run around screaming it's the greatest film of all time. Uh, which I think is the difference when you have people that, you know, again, the Goonies is the obvious example. I, I didn't even like that when I was five. I just, it just didn't do anything for me. And, you know, being a fan of Richard Donner, I must have watched it a half a dozen times over the last several years, hoping this was the time it was going to click for me. <laughs> um, but it, it just never happened. Um, Hook, I don't, again, I, I don't remember our generation being all that fond of Hook. No, it was if, uh, considered a failure back then. And yeah, it really was. And and I almost like it more now that I'm an adult because of my wacky theories of what it represented for Spielberg. The idea that it was him trying to determine if he could be, you know, the theory goes that they, you know, Indy 3 was him forgiving his parents for, you know, not being great parents. Well, Hook was him working out his issues of can I be a filmmaker and not, but also not repeat the mistakes of my parents. And could I be a participatory parent while being, while having its career? Um, but that, that doesn't mean it's a good movie. I just think it has interesting subjects to it. Um, but no, looking at my list, 
there really isn't anything on here that I that that I can't def- defend artistically. You know, if anything, there are movies on here that I'm more appreciative than I was. You know, I loved The Sixth Sense 15 years ago when I saw it. It was you know, my favorite movie of the year. Blah blah blah. 15 years later, every time I see it, I am more in awe of how well it holds up. Because, uh, you know, so much of the talk, you say, oh, it was about the twist ending, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no. The t- twist ending is one of the least interesting things about it. And that's why I love it. Field of Dreams is a film that I loved when I was a kid. But I like it even more now because I get, you know, the, the adult material of the film that I didn't necessarily get when I was nine years old. Um, I know you're not a big fan of that one, Aaron. That's why I felt bad, you know, felt okay <laughs> making fun of Home Alone. Because I know you get me for Field of Dreams. Um <laughs> But no, I, I I don't think nostalgia affects us so much because again, even at a very young age, we were able to see films in a more critical sense than perhaps others, you know, our peers. Um, and I don't mean that to brag. That's just we're film people. That's that's part of that comes with the territory. All I have to say is that I've seen Home Alone over one hundred times. I mean, I mean, nostalgia is a powerful drug, which is something that Hollywood. The Hollywood system itself has obviously realized over the last decade, if you look at the movies that they're turning wow. out, um, whether it be, you know, movies based on, like, um, I'm expecting them to make the Trapper Keeper movie any day now. Um, <laughs> no. Um, Rubik's Cube, the movie, stuff, you know, but um, in terms of... <laughs> Lava Lamp. The autobiography of Lisa Frank. Werner Herzog's Lava Lamp. <laughs> I-, I would actually see that. In t- I would see anything. In terms of the way I, I mean, I approach things, there are definitely movies I watch where I recognize a certain nostalgia value. But if I didn't still like them now or see something in them that I enjoy, I wouldn't continue to watch them just because of nostalgia. Like Back to the Future, for example, which I mentioned on my list, I have an immense amount of nostalgia for. I remember there was a period where... If you went to McDonald's, they sold, if you bought a meal, you could buy a VHS tape alongside it. And Back to the Future was what? one of those tapes. Yeah, dude. I yeah. A bunch yeah. of Mr. Mom, Wayne's World. <laughs> and I had never seen it until I bought that tape. And then I watched that mm-hmm. tape every day when I got home from school. So that whole experience is a lot of nostalgia. But I watch Back to the Future now, and it's an incredible, almost perfectly made film. So yeah. I recognize it, but it doesn't. Uh, obscure my thoughts. I think, though, like, something like Back Back to the Future could be, while you recognize it for that, to many others, like, the non-film people, could be that nostalgic film for them. Fully based in nostalgia. It's possible. I mean, I... I think it's difficult to put yourself in the head of anyone else, so... Yeah. I, I, I don't... You know... I don't know if people watch things just because of nostalgia. Who, I mean, do they waste their time? I, I don't know. It's an well, interesting... I note. think the, the one film that comes... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, it's fine. I'm done. Oh, the one film that comes to mind that I absolutely adored as a kid, watched it a gajillion times, and then when I watched it in, I think, college, I realized, oh, God, this isn't very good at all, is Spaceballs. Um, <laughs> but other than that... I would have to say that most of the films that I loved as a kid, I kind of knew even by, you know, for example, something in like Rocky Four. By the time I was 10, I realized that this is a pretty silly movie. Uh, even though I had watched it a gajillion times when I was five, six, seven years old. Um, but no, other than that, most of the stuff that I loved as a kid 
artistically still more or less holds up today. That I was ever able to separate the wheat from the chaff even then. Mm-hmm. Except for Spaceballs. <laughs> it, it helps that, like, I mean, because we certainly, you know, we all get raised differently. And, like, a lot of movies that I watch, like, I talked about how I watched Terminator 2 a lot when I was a kid. I didn't, there wasn't much stopping me from seeing a lot of movies that, you know, kids would not necessarily see back then. It was not because I snuck into movie theaters or snuck certain movies out of video stores or something like that. It was just <clears> that my my upbringing um, didn't limit me from certain movies, such as Terminator 2 or even... Uh, God, I watched a ton of horror movies that I shouldn't have watched, but, uh, but, but, but I also, but I also, that also, saw Caligula. Right. That, uh, <laughs> that also extends to a lot of older movies. I think a lot, of the, a, a good reason that I, I love a lot of older movies, um, that go far back. I, I mean, it's because I, with my mother would watch a lot of these kind of sixties, fifties, forties movies. I, I, my, my, one of my mom's favorite movies is the bad seed. Um, that's a movie I've seen a lot in my lifetime. Also, To Kill a Mockingbird. There are movies that I, again, that I, I've left off intentionally just because there's some of these that are just, I think are just classics that I can't, like, I can't comprehend how to, in, how to involve this into another list of movies that I grew up from a modern standpoint watching. So it's, but there's an appreciation there. But that certainly isn't nostalgia. That's just more, yeah, I watched these movies when I was young, but they're fantastic movies and they, you know, they, they remain to be that way. It's, it is a tricky territory to determine, like, if you're watching a movie because of some kind of fascination you had when you were younger and finding out that, hmm, I'm still gonna, I'm still enjoying the idea of watching this movie years later. But, um, okay. We're getting down to the wire. Let's go to one last, um, recording. One last previous cameo. Then we'll get to our top movies, um, uh, where it will be, of course, very easy to ter- determine which one to talk about. <laughs> All right. So now I'm here with friend of the show, Adam Gentry. Yeah, hey, guys. How you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? Very well. And, um, We've been, of course, doing this throughout the episode, so let's do it again here. Adam, what are some of your favorite movies of all time? It's always the hard question, because whenever someone asks you, like, you always tend to blank. Um, but that said, I mean, I've got a few films that really kind of stand out uh, to me. The one movie that I always pick as my favorite film, I always use the whole gun-to-the-head analogy. Like, I you only pick a favorite movie if you have to. But the one I typically use is uh, uh, Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby just because of how much of an impact that made on my life uh, when I saw it. You know, I was um, I was about uh, 19 years old at the time, and I remember going to see the film and, and not really being fully prepared for the effect it had on me, just because it, it deals with some really powerful issues that really made me put myself in another person's shoes in a way that a film hadn't really, you know, done for me before. And I remember, you know, literally not being able to think of anything else for like the next day or two afterward and just being moved so powerfully. And I remember, you know, just that was really when my idea of, of film as uh, an empathy generator sort of began, which is a term that Roger Ebert used to use, but there's no real greater thing that generates empathy than the movies do. I mean, I think it really puts you in somebody else's position. And what was really cool about that film was I, I had an, uh, an opinion on what becomes the key issue of the film, and I thought, okay, this is right, and this is wrong, etc. And then the film really made me look past my my own opinions into the life of another person and how I might feel differently if I were in that situation. So I mean, that's always kind of what I think of. And also the performances are just so amazing. You know, Hilary Swank, whom I don't think is a, is a great actress unequivocally, but I think is, is perfect for certain roles. It's the performance of a lifetime. You know, Clint's awesome, Morgan Freeman's great, and 
that in the Tillery's movie, it's fantastic. Um, I really like too the way that it's just so simply directed. And I say simply directed as a person who's you know certainly got no skill with directing himself, and it lo- just to say that it, it's not out to have a lot of thrills, visual uh, frills rather visually, but just out to tell a great story and to tell it as effectively as possible. Yeah, Eastwood's done. A, he's he's always had a kind of workmanlike. Uh, skill set to him in terms of his directing of films. It's never about you know flashy camera work. It's not that it's not that it kind of criticizes him as a director. It's just more of he knows what kind of shots to get to make an effective movie without having to overdo it. Yeah, and he works with the right people so that his DP will usually like. For example, in Million Dollar Baby, there's a lot of great stuff with shadows mm-hmm. where saw character will stand back in shadows so that you see part of them, but not all of them. There's all these cool little things that kind of his collaborators bring to the table. But I mean, yeah, I mean he's just a story guy. And the story, if it's as, as strong as it can be in his best stuff, you know, it's hard to beat. Um, but as far as some other stuff that I really get into, um, I really respond to um, a lot of kind of the old masters of, of cinema. I love filmmakers like Ingmar Bergman, whom I've often said, you know, if cinema had a god, it would be Bergman just because he does stuff so differently from other filmmakers and they don't even feel like films. They almost feel like some other kind of art form, and he just de- you know, delves so deeply into the human mind. So I think it's something like The Seventh Seal, which really meant a lot to me when I first saw it, and then a film like Cries and Whispers, which, ironically enough, is the only film of his I've ever seen more than once, um, despite it being perhaps the toughest film of his to watch. Um, I think of Bergman, I love uh, some of Kurosawa's best stuff, like Ron or Yojimbo. Um, I love Jules and Jim, the Francois Truffaut film. Godard and I have a, a weird relationship, but I love um, Vivre a That's a fantastic film with an amazing performance by Anna Karenna. Um, and also, uh, Pierre Le Fou is, is really fun and, and, and interesting. But the filmmaker that I really want to just kind of cap it off with is my favorite filmmaker of all time, and that's Krzysztof Kieslowski out of Poland. Um, I kind of think of him as a kinder, gentler Bergman because he, he really saw the horrible things people did, but he also saw the good that they did too, and he was able to balance it out and really to kind of capture both the despair present in everyday life, but also the hope for a better future. Um, he did a great series of films called The Decalogue, which was for originally for Polish television, in which each hour-long segment captured a different one of the Ten uh, Commandments and uh, just illustrated them in really interesting ways and really made you look at some of the fundamental underlying you know, concepts you know, not just this. This is a rule, but but how do we how do we follow this rule, and and what does it even mean, and what are the implications, and things like that. Um, but my favorite stuff of his, I really love the Three Colors trilogy. He yep. did a series of movies called Blue, White, and Red. Each film represented an ideal uh, that was represented by a color in the French flag. Um, and out of those three, there's a, the last one is called Red. And for my money, that's just that's just such an amazing piece of work. The great thing about Kozlovsky is you just you never knew what was going to happen next in his films. His scripts were very unconventional. He wrote with a, uh, a lawyer named Krzysztof Piesevich. Um, and just, you have no idea what could literally happen from scene to scene. The, you know, the characters kind of collide in these interesting ways. They, they don't follow, you know, the logic that an American script typically follows, which is exciting. Um, but that film just really has a sense of magic to it, and a sense of grace to the point where you get to the end of that film and you understand what the three previous, what the three films as a trilogy were trying to do. And you kind of see how differently 
they would be framed if it was an American film. Because at the end of the, the, the last film, there's this connection sequence where you find out how all the characters from each of the films are connected. And it's interesting because when you get to that point, you realize it was an American story teller trying to tell this story. You know, we would have seen the connecting piece at the beginning of each film, and then we would flash back and we would see different things about the characters. Whereas with Kozlowski, you know, he was just confident enough to make you wait till the very end of the experience to then tell you, hey, so I was telling a story about survival, and I was telling a story about how these people had to, you know, get through these challenges in their lives to, you know, to 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 move to a better place, and you know, in their own in their own lives and whatnot. So I mean, that that guy's my favorite. It was such a shame, that, you know, that he he passed away. Uh, while he was planning his next trilogy, he'd retired, but he was planning a trilogy called Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory that he never got to make. But but ultimately, my favorite movies are, are just films with strong stories, strong characters, and, and films that really kind of take me out of my own head and, and put me in someone else's and help me to understand the world a little bit better through someone else's eyes. Well, thank you, Adam. That's a, that's an awesome list. I was, so I was very happy to get the, the Three Colors trilogy on Criterion Blu-ray well, like, like two years ago now. It's such a, a great set. Uh, yeah, the, on the list, the list of films that you've named are all just rather excellent, which is you know not unexpected. Just given if we're going to talk about the best of the best, they're probably going to be some of the best of the best. So, uh, thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a pleasure, and happy 150th. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks again for that one. That was another exciting add-on to our 150th episode. So thanks for that. Good to get that insight, right? Yeah, I think so too. All right, so here we are. We have five films left each. Given that they're the top five films, I'd imagine that there's at least some kind of thought that says these movies are maybe better than, not better, but, you know, higher in your mind since you've chosen them to be your final five movies to talk about. So feel free to go into them, not, you know, crazy long because we we got to wrap this up eventually. But, you know, if you want to talk about more than one movie, go for it, I would say. Um, so let's let's start with Brandon. All right. Uh, number five, The Empire Strikes Back. Have you guys heard of that one? No. Nope. Okay. Indie movie? Is that yeah, Soderbergh? Yeah, independent. Um, little film uh, with a very uh, intimate director. Um, number four, Tim Burton's Batman, 1989. Uh, number three, uh, Chinatown, 1974. Uh, number two, Blade Runner from 1982. Uh, and number one, Halloween. We'll save the Halloween talk because you can go on HWLOD Podcast Network for Out Now with Aaron and Abe, where there's a Halloween commentary with myself, Aaron Newarth, and Jim Dietz. And also, if you go to my blog, I did a 31 days dedicated to the Halloween franchise. So I have talked about Halloween. Um, Heard of it. Yeah. There's a lot to it for me, so you can go to those spots and check out me talking about Halloween. Um <clears throat> Number five, Empire Strikes Back. Favorite Star Wars movie. Star Wars really big in you know making me a film fan, and this movie was just different, I think, than the other two. It was interesting story, and it, uh, the whole, all six of them now, it, it really stands out on its own too. Um, and there's, I mean, what there's not a lot more I could say about it, but it's just a fascinating science fiction fantasy film that you know I can always go back to have fun with but i think at an early age it, it wasn't my favorite star wars film it was over time that it became the one that i really liked a lot more um then i'll go with batman from 1989 you know 
uh, Dark Knight, uh, Batman Begins, those may be better movies, but for me, um, my experience with Batman was incredible. Like, uh, I am, I was born in 82, so I didn't get to see, like, Jaws on the big screen. I didn't get to see, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I didn't get to see, uh, uh, you know, Star Wars. So, going to Batman when I was, I believe, in first grade, after just finishing first grade, my my mother and my grandma took me to see Batman, and I was a cool kid because I went to a PG-13 movie, and I was you know, <laughs> seven, seven at the time. But, um, <laughs> my gosh, that movie just was huge on the screen. Like, larger than life. Like, never, you know, I hadn't been to a movie theater to see anything like it. It was incredible. It was, it, it just, it wowed me. I was just mystified. So I, I compare my experience to Batman as my first, like, you know, when people saw Star Wars for the first time in 77 on the screen. And they had that just incredible experience of transcending, like, film, this is why we go to theaters type thing. You know, everything was larger in life. And I've always gone back to the movie. I don't think the movie, the movie for many years got taken as like this uh, dark, gritty, serious movie, which going back to it, it's kind of not. It's kind of campy. But maybe that's just because of t- how time passed by. Maybe we It were... has a soundtrack by Prince. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And maybe it was because a lot of us saw it at such a young age that, you know, Jack Nicholson's Joker was frightening to me. I... Because he was just such such a wild card, and he just gave it all that, you know, it was scary because I didn't know what to expect from him, and he seemed really dangerous because of that. And I was, you know, I was seven years old. Um, Michael Keaton, I had no qualms with being Batman because I, di- I didn't know much about his comedic stuff, but there's a hissy fit about it, which, guess what, fanboys, you are wrong again! <laughs> he, got, he, got, he got labeled as, you know, he still gets probably labeled as one of the best Batmans. Um Number three, Chinatown, probably, to me, the greatest film noir movie ever made because it was a, the ultimate tribute to them. It had taken, it, it was like the film that had studied them and learned from them and crafted like the ultimate mystery. And I was with it step by step when I first saw it. I, I, I wanted I wanted to be with Jake Giddies looking at clues, figuring it out. Um, such a dark movie. And it kind of, you know, I've always thought the Joker's theme um, in Batman 1989, with Danny Elfman did kind of was a tribute to Chinatown score. If you listen to it, they kind of had that little dark piano thing going. Um, but that movie fascinates me. I go back to it all the time, referencing, studying. Just I, I love it. It's it's fantastic. Um, number two, Blade Runner is a film that at first time I saw it was kind of like, oh, that's what. It, uh, okay, and then something in me decided to watch it again and again and again and again and the movie just fascinates me because i learn something new about it every time i know something i didn't notice before i get some sort of different message from it um film has like five cuts of it available too so that's that's <laughs> something um i think i think this special... is better than the last <laughs> yeah I, I think i think the special effects in the movie are absolutely fantastic and i mean there's a lot of cg most cg out there doesn't even touch this and it, it holds up so well. It's it's fascinating. It looks so real, and you know, it has weight to it. Um, like we should be trying to match those effects, but you know, I I know like I come from a generation that likes the practical things, and I'm I'm guilty as everybody else. I go see the CG filled movies and stuff too. But um, I'm just the, the effects amaze me. The story. I read the book. I've read up everything Blade Runner, and this is a film that just grew its way up to making now. Like I have it as number two on my list, which 
a lot of these in like top ten stuff. I could I could jump all around, but yeah, I love Blade Runner. Um, and of course Halloween. So check out previous podcasts. Let's go over to Maxwell. Um, all right. Uh, top five will have um, Marty Scorsese's Goodfellas, Bob Fosse's Cabaret, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Woody Allen's Annie Hall, and Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Um, I'll talk a little about Magnolia. Uh, I think no matter how many more movies I see in my life and I expect it to be quite a few. Nothing will ever dethrone Magnolia in the top spot. Not only because I think it's an incredible achievement, but because it it was a film that came at the right time for me. And uh, in, I I always liked movies when I was younger, but when I saw Magnolia, I it was like you know that that light bulb that turns on in your head. It, it made me realize that film is not just entertainment. That film is art and that it is our most uh i think uh profound and comprehensive art form because it encompasses all other art forms in one but it's a funny story so uh, i was in a freshman in high school and we had free periods and at my high school was a stupid prep school we always all had to schlep around laptops with us to bring to each class and i had lunch and free period back to back so i basically had 90 minutes free and so uh, sometimes I would forego lunch and go get a cubby in the library, set up my laptop, and pop in a movie. Usually the movies were 90 minutes, an hour 40, so I'd finish them later. Obviously, Magnolia is over three hours long. I popped it in and said, okay, I'll watch part. I hadn't seen it before. I'll watch part of it now and part later. The next thing I knew, three hours and 15 minutes had passed. I'd cried more than I'd ever cried in my life, and I missed my whole afternoon of classes. It was just like a a seminal, life-altering experience for me. And I think that really speaks to the power that film can have over a viewer. It can transfix you. It can take you to places you never imagined. It can, as Magnolia did, change your life. Before I saw it, I I didn't know what direction my life wanted to take. And, you know, the, the minute it finished, I said, well, that's it. I'm going to film school. And I did go to film school, you know. And even though I haven't successfully pursued filmmaking as a career it's still you know a major component of my life and if not for that film it wouldn't be the case i'm not going to get into the film itself i recommend you watch it obviously but i think that anecdote serves as a testament to the power of film and why we all spend so much time talking about it for free on podcasts such as this one scott oh I keep in mind, most of these are relatively random choices. Um, I already mentioned Field of Dreams, so... Babe, The Mask of Zorro, Meet the Robinsons, Silence of the Lambs, and Batman. What a wild list of movies. <laughs> I <laughs> love it. <laughs> it's genuine in me, too. I love it. What was that? It's, it's genuine. Oh, it's yeah. Genuine. I mean, it's, it's... I've talked about Meet the Robinsons a thousand times over the years, so all I'll add to that is it is indeed one of those movies that I love more than anyone else on the on the planet. Uh, it's one of my favorite animated films. It is one of my favorite Disney cartoons, and it's just, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's much better than you're probably expecting it to be. It is an incredibly powerful little, you know, incredibly unassuming and powerful little movie. Uh, Babe, well, I mean, 
I assume most of you have seen the greatest movie ever made about talking pigs. Um, Mask of Zorro is my all-time favorite. Is probably, in terms of pure quality, probably one of the best superhero films ever made. Certainly one of the best superhero films ever made, not based on a comic book directly. Um, it is a near-perfect version of that kind of movie. Um, Sons of Lambs, what more can you say about that? It's been 20-some years. Uh, 20, 23 years, geez. Um, Jodie Foster gives the performance of her career. One of the great, you know, uh, I think her work is everybody's iconic as Anthony Hopkins. And I think Ted Levine is everybody's important as Anthony Hopkins. You know, Anthony Hopkins' larger-than-life Hannibal Lecter doesn't work unless it's contrasted with a very realistic Buffalo Bill. Um, and as far as Batman, uh, that is the film that made me, you know, for, for better or worse, that is the film that made me the person I am today. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's no secret that a lot of my writing is focused on box office and marketing and, and, you know, the why certain films are made and, and the choices that the studios make in terms of what to pursue and what to green light and, and Batman is where it started. You know, you want to look at where we are today for better or worse, and you could argue for worse. You know, 25 years ago, Batman, you know, the way trailers are cut, the way these, you know, films, you know, comic book films are treated today as the preeminent genre, the way that studios relentlessly pursue existing properties to hone in on the pre-market, you know, the, the marketability of a pre-established franchise, um... You know, the, the obsession with opening weekend, you know, the front-loaded nature of theatrical runs, um, you know, every trend, almost every trend, including a number of very bad ones, I would argue, go back to Batman. Um, and that's something I'm going to expand upon in June, because it's the film's 25th anniversary. But, you know, aside from that, it still is, as Brandon correctly said, it is the Star Wars of our generation. It was that film that we were just old enough to see in theaters. And yeah, it was bigger than anything else that we had seen in theaters at that point in time. And I would argue that the, all four Batman films, whether you like them or not, were bigger. They were the James Bond of their day in which they delivered the kind of big scale thrills and big scale production values that you just didn't get anywhere else. At that point in time, I mean, you know, in sixties you had the Bond films, in seventies you had, you know, seventies, eighties you had Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and then there was Batman that 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 sort of represented as big as you can go up until you know Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and arguably maybe the, the Return of Star Wars in nineteen ninety nine to two thousand one. Um, but I think the film still works as an accurate representation of the spirit and the tone of Batman from the beginning, the 1940s pulp comic books. Yeah. Um, you know, and it gets so many details right from the Smilax poisoning of the Joker's victims, leaving them with that hideous death grin on their face, to the annual ritual of Bruce putting flowers on Crime Alley where his parents were killed. Uh, you know, little bits and pieces like that. Um, for most of my childhood, up until maybe college, if put into a quarter, I would say Batman was my favorite film. And, you know, coming up on 25 years later and looking at, you know, the, the, the path that my life has taken for better or worse, mostly for better, 
Batman really is the movie that made me the person I am today. Therefore, I really can't think of any other choice other than Tim Burton's Batman as my favorite film. Uh, Abe, let's go with you. Sure. Yeah, so this, again, no real order, but the the last five remaining here, um, uh, Back to the Future, Amelie, The Godfather, Silence of the Lamps, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and... Um, I'm proud to go in that order. Back to the Future is one of my all-time favorite movies, primarily because of the rewatchability. I've probably seen that many times. Um, with a lot of these films, and with a lot of my upbringing, I've been... Uh, there are age gaps in some of the siblings that I have, and I think that's kind of been a benefit to me, too, because they would come home with different styles of movies because they're at different stages of their lives. And um, I remember, like, my brother would... He brought home, like, Le Boom one time, this French film about, like, growing up. And I was like, this is ridiculous, but... When I got older, I was like, yeah, it's actually not that bad. Um, but Back to the Future, I love the storytelling in that. I love the the, the clever writing. I love the, the clever jokes, Twin Pines Mall, Lone Pine Mall, um, the manure, the the minutia that they, they, that Robert Zemeckis and everyone took in that film. Uh, Amelie is one of my favorite films of all time, probably, because I went to go see it with my older brother, and uh, we went to go see it with someone who doesn't like to read subtitles, and so that made me happy already. Um, and my brother laughed at, a lo- at it a lot because, again, he was uh, he grew up in France, and uh, it's one of those times where I was like, I've never seen this movie, but I heard good reviews, and it was a dollar theater, and we went to go see it, and uh, I still to this day, it's like it's a one of the five, or it's one of like the top, or it's one of the ten DVDs that I own. I don't own that many DVDs, and. Amelie is, is one of them. Uh, I love the score by Yen Tiersen as well. Um, I often listen to it when I'm just writing uh, the Bart or just commuting or just walking around. I, I love that soundtrack. Amelie is a movie that I just want to, I like happy cry to. Like, I, I love like watching it just to like yeah. make myself like cry with happy tears. <laughs> In the same yeah. way that I do the same for Punch Drunk Love, actually, for that matter. But like, it's just like these kind of romantic comedies that just, they're just joy. But they're different. They have that weirdness to them that right. separates yeah. it from others. The weirdness is the thing that I, I like about it a lot. And there's two very specific aspects I like about Amelie. One of them is there's this drawing that she has on her wall of a girl with like a party hat on or a balloon, and she's walking this bear, and it's just their backs. Um, so pay attention to that next time you watch Amelie. And the other thing is uh, when Amelie's just feeling very generous and very helpful, she helps this blind man cross the street. And she explains everything that's going on, and the guy's just super enlightened by the time that, that she leaves him at the uh, the subway stop. Moving on here, we've got uh, The Godfather. I enjoyed The Godfather more than I enjoyed The Godfather 2, and the thing with The Godfather is I watched it at a younger age, too, but then I kept on watching it as I grew older, and everything sort of made more sense to me. Uh, and then I started reading the book, or I read the book, I should say, and it made even more sense to me, and I just loved how true they were to the book about it and i'm not one of those people that that often snaps about the book was better than the movie and whatever else it's just more i read it because i'd seen the movie and it was one of those things where it was also summer reading and i was like oh i'll read the godfather it's a pretty good book by mario puzo and the movie itself is again it just it layered itself on as i watch it more and more and more and it's an amazing movie i love the revenge aspect i love the familial aspect in terms of familial piety a lot of the themes in that movie I can sort of relate to, not in terms of being a bobster or whatever, but just in terms of, hey, look, you know what? 
other people are doing maybe not so great things because they want you to live a better life and things like that. I'm not saying that I'm part of a gang or anything. I'm just saying that I can sort of relate to some of the themes that they're talking about. You know, Abe, one of the things <laughs> uh, for me with the original Godfather that escalates it above the second one, which a lot of people prefer, is James Caan. I think he's such a great presence that's not in the second movie that I, that I just responded to a lot with his character, and I thought he was terrific in that. I, I just can't separate them at this point. And even more so, I'm so conflicted about thinking The Conversation is a better movie than both Godfather. So it's like <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola has like screwed my interpretation of what movie to really praise of his the most, even though they're all just fantastic <laughs> all right, movies. And here I am mentioning yep. Apocalypse Now. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, the last two, again, Sons of the Lambs, like what Scott had mentioned, I love this movie. Uh, hands down, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I could watch this over and over and over again, and I love it primarily because of the performances that the that the actors give, and I do include uh, Ted Levine in that as well. Um, like the 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 newness of Jodie Foster's character, her FBI agent Clarice Starling, and her drive to do uh, <coughs> to find this missing girl because of the events of her past life. That's very inspiring to some degree. It almost makes me feel as though I should have been. Uh, I, I probably would have uh, really tried to become an FBI profiler as well. Um, but the uh, the cleverness of uh, Hannibal Lecter and his motivations for helping Clarice, and uh, he's he's really getting something out of it as well, the, the quid pro quo, as he calls it. Um, and Ted Levine is just, like, he's, when you think about all the psychosis and the pathos that Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling have talked about with, with uh, Buffalo Bill, it becomes more intriguing because... He's not so much like uh, just like a cold-blooded killer, but he's he's positively thinking that he is someone who he is not. And again, the movie is incredible, and I think that it's got its, it's very haunting score by Howard Shore, um, which I still remember to this day. And it's just it's well done all around. And I, it was actually recently playing in theaters as a flashback movie, and I, I missed my chance to watch it on the big screen, but I do enjoy that film a lot. And um, lastly, Change Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, maybe a strange pick, but it's my first movie that I ever saw in theaters. And like what you guys have mentioned before in some of your previous picks, this is a movie that really defined how I saw movies, primarily because, not because of, you know, storyline or whatever else, but because I had grown up watching the, the cartoons, and I basically visualized the Shredder, uh, the Turtles, Casey Jones, April O'Neil in very certain ways. And then when it was brought into the big screen... I was blown away. I was like, this is exactly how I would imagine it in real life. Um, the Casey Jones mask, the way that they... I love the Shredder scene when he first walks out to meet all the soldiers. There's the shadow, and then they reveal that Tatsu is pulling the cape back, and it shows his his uh, arm guards and everything else, like all the, the pricks that he's got. It was amazing. Like, costume design in that was amazing, and I, I loved it for that. And um, the fighting sequences were also very good at the end there on the rooftop battle. Uh, which For I, being a low-budget movie, too, keep that in mind. Like, it's not like this yeah. was a it's huge an production. Film. Yeah, it was. It's one. It was. I'd never known that until you guys had brought that up. Actually, uh, probably like a few years ago, and I'm like, I never researched it beyond the point, the fact that it was New Line. So I love the New Line logo because I always used to think that the uh, the little frame that's off is Shredder's Shredder's hat. So I often think of it that way. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic movie, and again, it did shape the way that I look at movies today. Not just based on the quality of the movie, but just everything about it that makes sense to me, I, I do see in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
I think one thing that's understated about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is what a great adaptation it actually is of the original comic run. And it, right. it, it sort of filters in a little bit of the cartoon's flavor with it, but, I mean, it, it follows pretty good and, and hits a lot of important points from the original comic run. Yeah, I agree with that, because uh, I I remember I read the first three books or something like that from Kevin Eastman and... Or Ke- Kevin Laird? David Laird? I don't know. Peter Eastman. Laird and Kevin Peter Eastman. Laird and Gary <laughs> And it's a very dark comic book. The turtles do some, they, they kill a lot of foot soldiers and they do some, some serious killing because of what happens. And the first movie, the 1990s Turning Mutant Turtles, they do follow that dark path. Uh, some of the stuff doesn't uh, ultimately end up the way that you see it in the movie, but it's still very dark in such a way that it's, um, that I never thought about until I reread the comics like 20 years later. I, I didn't read the comics till much, much later. All right. I'll go through mine. I'll try to be quicker just because I know we have... We, <laughs> Sorry, for Aaron. Everyone that, it's fine. Everyone that's still listening, we, we really appreciate it uh, for sure. So my, my five here, I have Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, which I think is just an amazing blend of kind of Japanese samurai philosophy with this kind of hip-hop sensibility embodied by Forrest Whitaker's character and made even greater by the the score by Riza, who's since gone on to become an actor that just won't seem to go away, but is still a brilliant composer when it comes to some of these early films that he was working on. Number four, I have the Coen Brothers' Big Lebowski, which I think is, it's, I guess, by, de- by default, my favorite comedy, uh, even though some of these other movies are also kind of comedies, but it's just endlessly hilarious while also being this wonderful kind of neo-noir that has so many distinct characters and so much going on that reflects what's great about the Coen brothers' sensibilities as filmmakers, as well as what these actors can bring to roles, having someone like John Goodman, who's just always been a terrific character actor, along with someone like Jeff Bridges, who knows how to command a screen, even in his most kind of laid-back of modes. The little Big Lebowski is just fantastic all the way around. Um, three is... Three is ridiculous. I have Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction... And I can't even I can't separate Jackie Brown from it at this point. And I'm at a I'm at a point where I think in, in some future world I, Jackie Brown will probably be my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> um, but I think as much people know a number of things about me. One is that I'm a huge Batman fan. Another is that I I I love zombie media in general. And another I think is that uh, Tarantino plays a huge influence on kind of how I see film and how I how I love to kind of go to movies and go explore different media, different movies all over the place. And I, he does something that just clicks with me every time out when he writes and directs new movies. And Pulp Fiction, I think is, it's largely shaped a lot of how I view, view a lot of movies, um, almost as much as what I'm going to get to with my number one. And then Jackie Brown's just this kind of perfect thing for me where it just has all these characters engaging in a plot that is happy to allow itself an hour before it really gets going just because it, it is confident enough to have this very careful setup that's full of just drama and humor and mystery and what have you to kind of set up everything that's going to come out at the end of it. Um, my number two is George Armitage's Gross Point Blank. Gross Point Blank is a movie I watch every year on my birthday. In about 30 minutes, it's going to be my birthday, and I guarantee you, within that 24-hour period, I'm going to be watching Gross Point Blank. It's to the point where I can almost not explain why I love Gross Point Blank as much as I do, but I do. It's just this – it's this dark comedy that just I, – I don't I, – I can't, I, can't, I can't 
begin to comprehend what it is that clicks with me so well that it makes me want it to be this movie that I put it so high, but I do. There, it's it's inexplicable. Basically, I think everything about it is wonderful. I think it's a I think it's a very good dark comedy. I think it has some terrific themes about going back to one's time and seeing how they've evolved since then. I think John Cusack's amazing in it. I think Joan Cusack has oh, Dan, Dan Aykroyd, Jeremy. They all have, there's this wonderful supporting cast. I think that has some terrific action for a movie that's you know ostensibly a high school reunion comedy. Uh, I had to I had to write about this. I had to I had to review the Blu-ray a couple um couple years ago and I debated, debuted on Blu-ray and I was almost at a loss of how to do that. I somehow managed it. It's just more of a description of why I heap praise over this movie because of just various sequences. But it's it's weird to try to describe one of your favorite movies of all time like that. And of course, one like such a, a weird outlier amongst these others that you kind of expect to see on a lot of lists. But that one just hits me in every right way possible, almost as much so as my number one movie, which is Fight Club. A lot of these movies on this list, it's funny that I've talked about nostalgia, um, where a lot of these movies all center kind of almost around 1999, which is, I think, is a key year for me in general, in terms of kind of film forming my kind of appreciation for film. Um, but I still say I can kind of distinguish between kind of where I go back to versus what I consider to be quality. Fight Club, to me, it's it extends far beyond the kind of frat boy logic of people that like Fight Club for certain reasons and into kind of the deeper meanings that it has. And I, I just, I love this story. This is, this is one that I, I didn't get to see in theaters. Um, I initially had to rent it on VHS, VH what? VHS. And I watched it, I, wa- I watched it three times in a row before returning said VHS. Um, everything about it, just the, the way it's, Put together the performances involved, the story being told, the different layers, the subtext, the meta aspects, what David Fincher's doing, how the score comes around. Oh my god, the score is with the Dust Brothers so good. Everything about Fight Club, to me, it really opened my eyes and where what I could apply to kind of how I interpret film and how I where I want to go with that and how I how much I love movies for not just being entertaining, but being kind of influential on one's life. And that's one that I've always kind of centered out as one that defines a lot of who I am. I mean, not necessarily because of the themes in the movie or how cool it is that Project Mayhem involves bombs or none of that nonsense. It's just more of the effort put into making a film like that and the kind of joy that I get out of it, despite its some of its qualities that may not be, you know, fun in a positive means but just great in terms of kind of moviedom that makes any sense i want to wrap it up there just because we've been going on for so long um so yeah i think we've we've done it guys i think we've gone over all of our favorite movies for the time being um we, we're definitely going to revisit this topic late in you know later episodes in yeah. term and just and narrow it down more in terms of like decades or even filmmakers or film genres or whatnot but this is I think this is a really awesome conversation that we've had, and I, you know, I'm very happy for anybody that stuck around this long to, you know, listen to the whole thing. Um, it's certainly very cool to be able to get different people from all over the country, some of whom I know, you know, more personally than others, but that we can talk about film this way for this long, and you know, be be very be very satisfied with the kind of results that we get out of it. I also want to thank all the list, all the um, the guests that you know chimed in, and all the guests in general that have chimed into our show for the past 150 episodes. And more, since we have more than 150 episodes. Right. Technically, Materials and also the special bonus episodes and Q&A's. the holiday stuff yeah. and the Q and A's. Um, 
Abe, thoughts on thoughts on this on our accomplishment here today? No, it certainly is a milestone, and you know some people might think that 100 feet is not that many, but when you do it for over three years, like Aaron and I have been doing it uh, for free, like what Maxwell pointed out, I mean it certainly is one of those things where yeah, I, I'm we've come a long way, um, and we used to use RJD2 as our intro theme, and we used to record over Google Voice, and um, it was uh, it was a uh, when you look back on it, it was kind of a mess, but we ha- certainly have come a long way. We're still going to be making improvements to the show, and um, a lot of things have been very fortunate for us. Again, I, I do thank Aaron a lot for finding the range of guests that we have, um, and it certainly is uh, his credit that he's in LLA, and he also has a very jovial spirit about him. Uh, so if you ever meet him, he's more than happy to talk to you. I think that he he met one of our friends, Jordan, just waiting in line to go see a movie. So yeah. Um, we certainly enjoy all the guests that we have on, the new ones, the old ones, uh, the guys that we just have Q&As with, like uh, friend of the show, also author, Robert I'm James. Robert James, right? And that was a very fun episode uh, where he was talking about the, the history of film and where he was in his book writing. But um, there's not really much to say except for thank you to a lot of the fans. I mean, it was very, it was a very uh, happy moment for both Aaron and I when we were getting friend requests on our Facebook page or I guess likes that we didn't know. We didn't know these people at all. Um, and that was very exciting. And it was also very exciting when people were writing into our contests that were not in the state of California and they were in places like North, uh, like South Carolina, North Carolina, Vermont, uh, East Coast, a lot of that place, a lot of those places. Um, and it's just been a very big thrill. And so we hope to continue going and, um, Everybody's support basically just makes this all better. And again, all you three that are here with us right now, presently in the podcast, Brandon, Maxwell, and Scott, thank you guys very much. I know that you guys really don't have to do this at all, um, and you guys certainly are not getting any checks from Aaron or I. So it's it's one of those things where uh, I think our love of film and just how we just want to express ourselves in a very fun manner. It's uh, that's really why we do it. Just think, Abe, we. Every week on Facebook for the past, you know, over three years, there's been an update from our podcast. <laughs> right. We have not, we've literally not missed a week in this show. Consistency matters. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure being along for the ride. And I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Yeah. Oh, um, I want to wrap up just because it's been going along. So just be really quick. I mean, you can, you know, where you can find our show, iTunes, Stitcher, hhwld.com, outnow.podomatic.com. We have our email, outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to let us know your favorite movies of all time. Like our page, facebook.com, outnowpodcast. Follow us on Twitter, outnow underscore podcast. And, uh, yeah, to the to, you know to the next 150 and more, I'd say, for this point. This has been good. This has been good, John. This has been, this has been very fun. Thanks. Thank you, Brandon Maxwell, Scott, joining, for joining us today. Thank I know you. it's really late for some of you guys. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. And happy birthday, because... It is your birthday where I'm sitting. I'm here. <laughs> Happy thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. I mean, there's, as Abe said, I, I consider myself a jovial person. I like to have a good time. I was out with a lot of friends the other weekend to celebrate the birthday early because I'm doing other things this weekend. But this is like, doing this podcast is the most the, the most fun I have all week, generally. I mean, give or take something crazy that happens. I mean, this is what I, <laughs> this is what I look forward to doing every week and joining up with Abe, who... He's the one that started this podcast, technically. I mean, he's the one, he's the one, he, gave, he brought the idea to me. I didn't bring it to him. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful that we have this kind of thing where we can do this kind of thing. And so sitting here on my birth, you know, 
on what is essentially going to be on my birthday in a couple minutes, I'm incredibly happy that I'm able to, you know, do this every week and provide this kind of outlet for Abe and I, as well as various guests, to talk about these movies week after week after week. Much to the chagrin of some people that still listen, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so, with all that said, next week we're talking about Godzilla. That should be that should be fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I have a thing for that. Um, and that's how we'll wrap up the show. Exactly. <laughs> so until next time, so long and goodbye. I can name my wife's favorite movies. White Chicks, Batman and Robin, Grease 2. Uh, Good Lord. Stop, <laughs> stop this. <laughs> With that said, let's get this thing going. Okay. Do it. Do it. All right. Okay, I've got a list I'm comfortable with. Okay, good. <laughs> we. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. I don't know what's Quiet going on. Quiet on the set. I didn't hear Quiet on the set. In heard... three, two, one, action. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and of course, with me is... Abe, what's up? <laughs>